And then you've got Eraserhead, which is a fucked up movie. I, I've never seen that either. I've only seen bits and pieces. I've never seen the whole thing now, all the way Is through. that Lynch? It's a Lynch. I think it's his first That's film. his first one? First feature film. That's the dude with the Jufro that looks mm-hmm. like Kid and Play? Yeah, that has uh, an abomination for a child. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Special report. Decades rematch. You know the drill. Once upon a time, I bet any year of film in the 1980s would beat any film from any other year in any other decade. I flippantly told Dave 1984 would beat 1924, 1934, and so on. And he roundly proved me wrong. I wanted a rematch, and again, I chose 1987 out of a hat. That year may flip both of our points of view. By the time this podcast is over, we will also take a huge deep dive into our letterboxed accounts, finally spend an adequate amount of time on the amazing October of 2021, and we break down our love of cinema and compare the size of our screens. And we're back. The Decades Rematch. Rematch is a bit strong, but yes. We are going to have a civil discussion regarding what um, particular year and any specific decade strikes our fancy. 1987. Yeah, that's a real problem for me. Yeah, it's a it's a problem for me too because again, like 1984, which was the, the previous decades mm-hmm. discussion, that was flippant. That was off the hand. That was I bet you 1984 is better than 1974, 1994, 1964, and you know. And, and I feel like it was not. I think that you won that argument. Right. I don't see how I have a chance in the living hell to win 87 versus any other year ending in 7. Well... It's problematic. Again, the idea was mine, that if you take 87 against all the others, then 87 will win. And, again, I just chose that kind of randomly, right. and, I, and I stuck to it. I had plenty of, of chance to, or plenty of time to go through and research... All of the other years to make sure, oh, this wasn't a good candidate. Maybe it was 83, or maybe I should have stuck 86 or 89. No, I didn't do that. Right. No, no, no. It was a completely blind and just picked out at a random. Right. One in ten chance. And so we're going to do the same thing to this, and I still don't think I have a chance in hell. I think I'm going to lose the whole 80s argument. However, I want to follow through. See, I disagree on that one. I think 87 will probably win. Really? Yeah, I really do. Now, of course, I've got a certain bias. Right, I turned 16 at 87, so it was one of those, you know, formative years, and I look back at the movies that were released in that time, it's like, oh yeah, that's a classic, oh yeah, that one's really dear to me, et cetera, et cetera. So, I had a real hard time finding another correlating year that I said, well, yeah, I think that objectively is significantly better. I was literally having a hard time with 87. That's interesting. Yeah, I know, this probably means something, doesn't it? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. So, we got your smokes. Yep. You got your beer? Um, I better have a couple. What are you What are you drinking? Right now I am drinking, oh gosh, you know what? I'm not even sure. It's a local IPA, but I don't recall the name offhand. I just like the can, and that's really basic, but that's what I got. Oh, that's okay. I'm having a Shiner Box Cerveza, which I've never had before. So it'll be interesting. Now, before we 
If you don't mind, I want to do the highest grossing of 1987 at the end. I want to discuss the year 1987 at the end. And I don't want to go what we did last time is we went decade by decade. Right. So that was starting in 1927. Mm Mm-hmm. Because 1917 is a shitload of Chaplin films. Right. Basically. In yeah. one reels and two reels. But it's also one of those that, you know, when I went through 27, 37, frankly, 47, it was like, you know, okay, you've got a handful and every year, two to three to five. It's like, okay, that's really good. But, you know, it quickly delved into a list of films that I hadn't seen. And almost every one of which I hadn't ever even heard of. And we ran into that the the last time. Right, but it is one of those where, for some reason, some of those other years didn't. I couldn't find much of anything. You know, I recall the last time you know you got into forty four and fifty four, and you're like, oh, okay, here's a list of things that I'm real familiar with, either by watching and personal feelings or just reputation. Okay, and I wasn't finding a good corollary. Okay, but twenty seven, I can't believe you say that because. I mean, 1927 has The Jazz Singer. That's one of the most famous films of all time. Yes, it's, it's, it's very iconic. You know, it's one of the first... It's probably the first significant talkie. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like the second film to have sound mm-hmm. that's synced. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't true sound that was printed on the film. It was basically like a record that you played on a gramophone uh, behind the curtain. Right. And it's subject, but it's, I mean, it's objectively important, right? It is right. It is critical to that which follows thereafter. But it's just a movie, right? Right. But I, I've seen the jazz singer. It's been a long time. It's been mm. twenty twenty five years. But I, I did enjoy it. Yeah. Um, that was the highest grossing film that year. One point nine million dollars. <laughs> Which is kind of. Thing. I wonder what that <laughs> means. Amazing. Adjusted dollars. I, you know, I, that'd be very interesting to find out. Certainly, I didn't look it up. I would imagine over a hundred. I would imagine so. Seventh Heaven, King of Kings. Now, King of Kings, the silent version. Mm-hmm. That's also by Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil DeMille's, yeah. Yeah. And that that pulled in the number three spot, the 1.5. Mm-hmm. And then Tell It to the Marines, Patent Leather Kid, Best Girl. I haven't seen any of these. Yeah, none of those. Are, I mean, I'm not even familiar with them. Right. However, when you go into the awards, uh-huh. uh, which were handed out, I'm guessing, in 1928... I would think so. But that was, that is familiar. Mm-hmm. Wings. That's the first Oscar. The, the one, but that's how I know it is. It was the first Oscar winner for Best Picture. But I've never seen it. I I don't know it. I know it's got some um, outrageous, especially for the time, dogfights. Right. You know, and I know that's kind of one of the big things. But I've not seen it. So I, aside from that piece of you know, trivia. Right. Well, this was the. Um, I think this was Paramount. I remember correctly because I own it. I was at Paramount and I bought it, and they're really proud of that. They'll tell you, oh, first Oscar. We, yeah, we got the first Oscar ever issued for Best Picture. But this was also the competitor to Hell's Angels, okay, which was the Howard, Howard Hughes Haw- film. Howard Hughes, yeah, but I said Hawks for some reason. Yeah, no, they're two, the two Howards, mm-hmm. which sounds like a great movie. They probably knew each other, but you know, Hell's Angels. The, the famous story was you know, Howard Hughes shot that for like four or five years, mm-hmm. and then he finally finished it. And then the jazz singer came out, and he said, oh, we have to have sound. So then he – it was like a $2 million movie, right. which for back then it was like, well, what is going yeah. on, right? And and the famous story of him you know, going to Louis Mayer, which I think is in the movie The Aviator. I think it is, yeah. That Scorsese did, which is a brilliant movie. I, I love that movie. And he asked Louis Mayer, you know, can I, can I borrow another one of your cameras? And Louis Mayer owned like three. 
And Hughes said, well, I can't do this without seven cameras. Like, can you just imagine how much cameras cost back then? It's crazy. Uh, actor, Emil Jennings and Janet Gaynor. And uh, the director was Frank Portage for Sunrise. It's pretty crazy. Emil Jennings was in, well, he was in uh, Wings. Okay. And uh, what was amazing to me, of course, were three movies that were left off of 1927, which didn't really win any Academy Awards, and I couldn't even find a, a revenue source for it, but Berlin, A Symphony of a City was 1927, which is a, a great film. I, I've never seen. I don't know it at all. I give you a blank look, which doesn't translate from a podcast. Well, this but, is... I'm assuming that this has a lot to do with your... Uh, you know, fascination with the Germans, especially in that time, you know, pre-half century. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to be a little bit biased towards it. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, to, but this is like Weimar period. Mm-hmm. The Weimar cinema is, um, I think, like hands down in the 20s, it's beating Hollywood left and right. I really, and not to say anything about uh, Hollywood silent films. You right. know, I think, I think that they're fantastic and I, I watch plenty of them. But I think the, the Europeans and specifically the Germans are just dealing blows. I mean, for, for Berlin Symphony of a City is basically the idea of they, they handed out 10 cameras to 10 different directors. And they said, go out to Berlin and then shoot the city mm-hmm. and shoot what life is like in Berlin over the course of a day. And so that's, that's what they did. And they patched it all together in this amazing edit job that you know was influenced by Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. And that, that was what they came up with. It was so successful all over Europe that the Russians even did it. And they did the same thing over the Soviet Union. And that was called Man with a Movie Camera. Okay. Which I have also seen that film. And I, in my opinion, that one's even better than Berlin Symphony of a City. Now, 27 is, of course, the year of Metropolis. Right. Which is it's a very indisputably significant achievement. I mean, I can't believe I've seen that film three times. That is a three-hour silent film. And I've seen it three times. I mean either yeah (laughs) it's an amazing movie and and you know the you know what the most patient part of that film is believe it or not the dialogue Mm -hmm. just waiting for the cards that's like jesus this is taking too long but as far as the montages and the acting it's it's really quite good and then of course october okay another eisenstein film about obviously the october revolution 1917 And, and all those are you know magnificent achievements Right, mm-hmm. but it's also one of those where the volume of significantly cultural, impactful films just I just didn't see it in retrospect. In 1927, right? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a few, and there's every year's going to have a few, but it was one of those where just from the total volume, it just didn't didn't happen for me. 1937. In 1937, it's interesting, right? You got you got Snow White. Yes. The highest grossing film at four point two million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was a it's a phenomenon. I can only imagine what it was like when you went to go see it at the time. It's it's animated. It's in color. It's got to be one of those things that sort of like kind of like Titanic. It is a it's it's a piece of the zeitgeist, and obviously it still is. Yeah, right. It's a it's still a damn fine entertaining movie. I think so, and, and a remarkably accomplished technical achievement. Yeah, and it's also wrapped up in Hollywood lore. Um, everybody, well, everyone who's interested in cinema now knows, like, you know, Disney put everything on the line for Snow White and borrowed all the money that he could and mortgaged his house. And and 
everything was riding on Snow White being this enormous success. And not only was it an enormous success, like it, it, it far exceeded what even he thought it could do. Oh, yeah. Wildest dreams type stuff. Right. And, um, and he was able to grow Disney at an exponential rate when he was just doing these one real throwaways mm. before then. And we say that now of, you know, this is what was going on. You know, who gives a shit now what happened in 1937? But like you said in Titanic, everybody knew when mm-hmm. Titanic came out the backstory of how that film was shot. Right. Of James Cameron having this batshit crazy idea of this movie's going to cost $100 million. No movie had made $100 million mm-hmm. before Titanic. So the, no, that's not true? I don't know if that's accurate, but go on. But the idea of a, a film costing that much, I mean, that's yeah, it's, that's crazy. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. No, there are a lot of films before that. But I know what, you, you, yeah. what you're saying is it was definitely, it's like Cleopatra, right? Right. Where it was, even the casual film goer was aware of its existence and the the struggles and just magnitude of the thing. And it was one of those things where, you know, or, you know, you got Cleopatra, and you've got, say, Waterworld, where even, you know, Time Magazine, as opposed to whatever the Entertainment Weekly of the, you know... Of the time. the time would have been, right? Or Premier Magazine. Just where it was like, oh, this is now in just regular culture conversation. Right. People at the time knew the story of Snow White. It was mm-hmm. it was hugely impactful in entertainment. And it it solidified Disney and his company as... A major studio. Right. I mean, to the point to Probably, where... Yeah, you know, one of the most important studios. Yeah, well, three years later, when William Randolph Hearst offered to... Um, well, when he threatened everyone in Hollywood with exposing them as Jews, mm-hmm. if they didn't do something about Citizen Kane, the five major studios got together and they pulled their money in order to buy the negative and destroy it. And one of those five was Walt Disney. Now, you think about being a, a ragtag uh, warehouse bunch of animators mm-hmm. in 1937 to being the one of the fifth largest. I'm sure he was number five, but. the fifth largest studio in Hollywood in a span of three years, mm-hmm. four years. That's that's crazy success. Yeah. I mean, you don't see that these days. Yeah. And then uh, number two, Saratoga. Never saw it. Mm-hmm. Maytime, Good Earth, Stella Dallas, Broadway Melody. Aha! One point eight million that year, a star is born. Right. Now is that the first version or the second? I think this is the first version and I, I believe that Judy Garland did one in the late forties. Okay. Because there's been what? There's, I think there's been four, because the third version is Christofferson. Right. Yeah. And then Captain's Courageous, famous film, Lost Horizon, another famous mm-hmm. film. Um A Day at the Rallies, which is a, a Marx Brothers. Which is always entertaining. Yeah. But Best Picture that year, The Life of Emile Zola. I think that was an Emile Jannings film. Uh, Best Director, Leo McCurry for The Awful Truth. Never saw it. Best oh, really? That's yeah. really good. That's on Criterion, if I remember It correctly. is. It's a Cary Grant. Or HBO Irene Max. Dunn. I did both. Cary Grant and who? Irene Dunn. Okay. Okay. Best Actress, Louise Rayner for The Good Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, supporting Actor went to Joseph Schildkrant for The Life of Emile Zola. Best Actress... Was Best Supporting Actress was Alice Brady for In Old Chicago. But two films came out this year uh, that we shouldn't forget. Pepe Lamoco, okay, also in the Criterion mm-hmm. Collection. And then Topper. Right. Now, I, I figure if you didn't bring that up, I'd be shocked. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, the, the, you know, Grand Illusion came out that same year. No. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Wow, you can really hear that. You can, but that's okay. It's a jet <laughs> engine. I'm just uh, lighting up my cigar. Go ahead. No, so, I mean, Make Way for Tomorrow. Um, make Way for Tomorrow. Don't know it. It's, it's, it's a movie I only know by reputation. reputation, but I've never seen it myself. But, you know, Grand Illusion I've seen, and that is that is excellent. That's like number one in the Criterion Collection. It, it is, but I mean, that, I mean, that's one of those things where it's a, a, a historical. It's and, very famous. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But, I mean, that is that also, Cocteau? No, it's um, Renoir. Renoir, yeah. Yeah, Orson Welles' favorite filmmaker. Okay. Renoir. Which, uh, the ones I've seen, it's pretty out- he's pretty outstanding. But, you know, if you hadn't brought up Topper, I would have been shocked considering that is, you know. Well, I, I bring it up for, yeah, for obvious reasons. My my dad had a dog named Topper when he grew up. You know the story about how dad gave me a, a schnauzer, the same the same type he had uh, when I was a kid. And I have one now that I give to my kid. And, uh, but Topper was an enormously popular film. It was a, it, oh, that's yeah, a pop huge. culture thing, right? Yeah. For 20 years, people mm-hmm. knew Topper. Yeah, no, it was, a, <clears throat> my grandparents certainly did. I think I watched it when I was a kid. And, yeah, it's just entertaining. It just is. 1947. Here's where we get kind of probably in the realm of we know what we're talking about. Right. I mean, you got Black Narcissus, Miracle on 34th Street, uh, Lady from Shanghai, which I know would be a personal favorite of yours. Yeah. Um, But even then, The Bishop's Wife, uh, it doesn't, Gentleman's Agreement, it doesn't get long before it's getting into... I mean, Brute Force is interesting. I have seen that. Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I'm aware of the remake, but I've never even seen the original. But it, it does start going off into areas that I'm just not familiar with and haven't withstood from a popular culture standpoint. Well, the top ten highest earners for 1947, I've never heard of, um, with the exception of one, which is The Road to Rio, which is one of those Bing Crosby, right. um, road. Bob Hope Road trip road ones, yeah. which famously remade... Um, the style was remade in Spice Like Us mm-hmm. uh, with Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase in 1983, less, I think. Yeah, much less, you know, much less popular. Right. rewards. Uh, but the film that got the best, uh, the best Picture Award that year was Gentleman's Agreement. Mm-hmm. I've actually seen this film. This is Gregory Peck um, fighting prejudice when a friend of his who is a Jew is denied entry into a, a golf club. And so he goes and fights for the man. And I, I want to say it's a Billy Wilder film, yeah. although I can't remember. Should be. Uh, director? No, it was Elia Kazan. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was Elia Kazan. It had to be one of those two, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, best actor went to Ronald Coleman for A Double Life, which I'd never seen. Mm-hmm. No, no. Actress was Rosalind Russell. I've seen her in a million things. What was the film? Uh, Morning Becomes Electra. And then the screenplay, the best screenplay for that year, will not shock you. Miracle on 34th Street. That's a little bit shocking. That that, that film is so famous. Like, even, no, even it, my it family is, but watches it's one, it. It's one of those where I would, if you would have told me it didn't really gain popularity until 20 years later, I wouldn't be stunned type of movies. The one that the one that really stands out, I mean, you have Odd Man Out, Out of the Past, which... Odd Man Out is pretty good. Oh, my God. Out of the Past. But uh, The Lady in the Lake, that... That's a crazy film. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a film noir where Mar- I, think, I think it's Marlowe is is the detective, okay. but the camera is Marlowe. 
and it goes back to person. yeah first person camera and it goes back to an idea that uh, Orson Welles actually tried to do before he shot Citizen Kane one of his ideas was to do uh, the Heart of Darkness Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness mm-hmm. he's going to have the the and uh, that character's name is Marlowe as well he, and he wanted uh, the camera to be Marlowe and then go through the jungle like that and, and they planned the entire thing the only thing they had not done with that was uh, set a principal photography date okay. and commit the money but it's very interesting that you know six years later they do the same thing for Lady in the Lake. But apparently, uh, other than the novelty of it, it, it disappeared quickly from view. People just it was too had too much distantiation, from what I understand. Gotcha. Anything else from 1947? Not really, no. Unfortunately, 1957. Now I start it's running out. Interesting. Yeah. I run out of room on the page. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It really is. I mean the. The disparity in the numbers now is getting greater. Yeah, that's when all of a sudden you see this. Once you get to the 50s on a lot of these lists, not a, not 100%, but once you get to the 50s, when you start seeing this huge leap. And what really kills me about it is is over this 10-year period, 47, 57, mm-hmm. yes, things are getting into the popular memory. But the this is the age of television. Mm-hmm. This is when Hollywood starts dying. And yet... They're making – it just seems like they're making more money than ever per picture. Right. Right. Bridge on the River Kauai, highest earner that year with $15 million. And then a whole list of stuff I've heard of. Peyton Place, mm-hmm. Old Yeller, A Farewell to Arms. Wait. You've only heard of Old Yeller? I saw when I was a kid. Okay. You cried, right? Of course. All right. Good. Everybody cries. Or, or, or they're lying. <laughs> Gunfight at the OK Corral with that. I mean, that's got Kirk Douglas mm-hmm. and uh, Burt Lancaster, I think. Yeah, that's right. Right. And then, of course, Bridge on River Kwai takes Best Picture. David Lean takes Best Director. Uh, Joanne Woodward takes uh, Best Actress for The Three Faces of Eve. Red Buttons grabs Best Supporting Actor. Alec Guinness takes Best Supporting Actor for Bridge on River Kwai. Mm-hmm. But, my God, the other films that came out this year, shocking. Absolutely shocking. 310 to Yuma. Yuma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men. Which a, is a historically phenomenal movie. Yes. And and the, the the thinking that that man directed films into the 80s. Is, is pretty astounding. Right. It's it's kind of like uh, John Huston. I just saw The Dead mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. His, his last, his last movie. Yeah. Uh, posthumously. It came out in 86, I think. And to think that his first movie was... Uh, you know, the Maltese Falcon, 1939. Right. He'd done screenplays before. Um, the Curse of Frankenstein, which is... Which is trash, but it's yeah. entertaining. <laughs> Fire Down Below. Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn. Jailhouse Rock with Elvis Presley. Love in the Afternoon. Lower Depths by Akira Kurosawa, right? Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. And that's where it gets really interesting. You start seeing an influx of the foreign films yeah. in the American For the first yet. time, yeah. Because, right. I mean, you have Seven Seal... Same year, um, Wild Strawberries, which is another Bergman film. Oh, gosh, what was the one that I'd seen that I'm now... Well, Paths of Glory, yeah, which was a European-backed yeah. film. Um, the one that really stood out to me was uh, Throne of Blood, mm-hmm. which effectively is a Macbeth remake. Right. You know, Yet another Kurosawa flick. Yeah. And you got Sweet Smell of Success, which is a personal fave. Really enjoyed that movie. You know, you got Jailhouse Rock, which is, you know, it's a very popular piece of popcorn. 
I mean, it's really good. It's not good, but it's really entertaining. <laughs> well, that influenced a lot of people. You mm-hmm. had people like uh, uh, the Beatles and the future Rolling Stones and the Who. You know, that was that was an enormous influence on them. 1967. So that was the one that I was actually thinking maybe better than when I went back and looked. Then it it wasn't as good as I was expecting, from my personal perspective. I was I, I was just expecting some more. But go on. That's okay. So you think that this is the biggest competitor to 1987? No, no, no. I don't. I, that's the one that I probably expected to be the biggest competitor. And you were surprised when it wasn't? For me personally, yeah. Well, it doesn't surprise me that the graduate is the highest earner, forty-three million. Mm-hmm. But what surprises me is the second highest earner. Guess who's coming to dinner? That is half of the income of the graduate. Right. And this is kind of the first time where we see the second movie be so it gets laughed essentially. Right. Right. Bonnie and Clyde was the third, twenty-two million. Dirty Dozen was the fourth, twenty million. Valley of the Dawes, Dolls, twenty million. Um, to Sir with Love, You Only Live Twice, nineteen million. Uh, Thoroughly a Modern Millie, The Jungle Book, fourteen million. Camelot, mm-hmm. my God, Camelot, twelve million. That, that's that's the film version of the right, play the with uh, movie, Richard yeah. Burton, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. It's a musical. I don't know if Burton was in it or not. He might have been. I don't think he was in the. F- well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if he was involved in this. Right, or right. Yeah, I don't. Memory does not serve me well. But the the best film that year was In the Heat of the Night, which I. I'd seen that three or four times. That was famous when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, uh, now nowadays people don't really, they're kind of more. They're kind of lukewarm on it. Well, they best. go to, the, the one they go to for the civil rights era is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm-hmm. They kind of leave in the heat of the night out. I think it's really unfortunate. Uh, there's lots of moments in the heat of the night that really yeah, it, hit me in my it's memory. It's a real powerful movie. And Rod Steiger's Oscar, I mean, at this point, is to a certain degree dismissed because Portier didn't win. Right. But it is one of those where it's like, well, if you watch the movie, it's a powerhouse performance by Steiger. It really is. It is. And, and every time, I mean, I, I completely understand uh, people getting upset that Pontier didn't mm-hmm. didn't get it. I think his performance in it is is absolutely stellar. Yeah. That that moment at the end on the when Pontier gets on the train and Steiger says Virgil and then Virgil turns around and he just barely he just barely makes it out of his mouth. He says, "Now you take care now, you hear?" Mm-hmm. And his his voice almost cracks. Doesn't crack, just almost cracks. Yeah, it's when men were men. Yeah. And then when Pontier returns that smile, like, I got to you. Right. I, I proved to you something about what a black man is and what he can do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that look on Steiger's face and Pontier's eyes, like, I, I, I get that because Steiger sh- starts off as, you know, like the most racist cop in all of Mississippi. And then he, not to say at the end he's not. But. But he's, his. You know, the same person he was at the right, beginning of the story. Right. So, I understand that argument. I still think it sucks that Pontiac didn't get it, though. Actress oh. Catherine Hepburn for, for that film, Guess Who's mm-hmm. Coming to Dinner. Now, I have not seen this film. I've not seen it either, actually. I, I just know of it. I know what it is. You know, but I've not seen it. I, do, I have seen tons and tons of clips of Spencer Tracy mm-hmm. in it, and he looks really good. And Tracy, at this point, is on his deathbed. Yeah, he's getting up there. But he's, I mean, he. But he's been dying for twenty years. Yeah, he, he he was old when he was young. Yeah. Then 
Yeah, cool hand Luke, which is okay. So I was going to bring that up. Okay. <laughs> George Kennedy uh-huh. got a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this. Well, I, I, I wasn't there, right? So I don't know. It, it seems kind of absurd on the face of it, but I, I, I don't know. You know, I wasn't alive watching the telecast, right? I wasn't involved in the culture by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't exist. So it seems sort of strange. I mean, Paul well, Newman was, was fucking amazing. Yes. But Paul Newman is kind of always fucking amazing, frankly. Yeah, it's just, and, and we, we can't have to remember that as, as people who really remember the 80s. George mm-hmm. Kennedy, by that time, was like a parody of himself. Yeah, very much. You know, the, the Naked Gun movies mm-hmm. and so forth. And he did a lot of comedy. Uh, he popped up on a, a on a Carol Co. movie that Luke and I were watching, like a Golan Globus movie, Can- oh, yeah. Cannon Group. <laughs> yes. um, I, you know, I think it was the, I think it was that damn Delta Force movie where mm-hmm. Chuck Norris and, and Lee Marvin. Marvin have to go rescue all the Jews George off Kennedy's the plane. In that too? Yeah, he's oh, in there. he's one of the passengers. I think he's a priest. You know, <laughs> it's George George Kennedy is a priest, and in in the seventies, you know, he was in uh, Brass Target with John Cassavetes. Okay. Which was a film about um, people trying to assassinate General Patton at the end of the war, and Kennedy played Patton. And this is, I think, this is like seventy eight, seventy nine. It just didn't. Right, it's hard to look back and say, oh, but he was a well respected and decorated. Actor. But but he was. Yeah, there there was, was there was yeah. a time in the sixties and early seventies where George Kennedy was just absolutely. A, and the same thing happened to Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was yeah. a serious actor. Yeah. It's impossible to believe. He was the captain of the Poseidon, you know. <laughs> and the captain, well, you know, he's the, I about to say the captain of the airplane and airplane, but he was not, obviously. Right. He was the uh, the doctor. Yeah. Um, so I just I just saw his name pop up there, and I was like, really? He had a, he had a fucking Oscar? <laughs> George Kennedy had a fucking Oscar? Apparently. You know? He shared the same screen as O.J. Simpson. He has an Oscar. <laughs> no. But that's unfair. That's unfair. Screenplay. Went to Sterling Siliphant for In the Heat of the Night. Okay. I thought this was interesting because Sterling Siliphant was a, a personal friend of Bruce Lee. And they worked on a, a script together that eventually was shot with uh, David Carradine in a role. I wonder which, what that could be. Uh, it was called The Magic Flute. Oh, okay. Okay, so I have a list of films for the rest of 1967. The Night of the Generals with uh, Peter O'Toole in Lake Flint, which has James Coburn and really the the first James Bond parody. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was even before Casino Royale, uh, the the Peter Sellers version. Uh, Ombre, that had, that's a Paul Newman that's movie. That's Paul Newman flick, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Belle de Jour mm-hmm. with... Uh, and that's kind of where my list was. Okay, okay. You Only Live Twice. Which I like. I like it. I think Donald Pleasance is the best Blofeld. Yeah, certainly. Personally. Branded to Kill. Which is it? Crazy fucking movie. Yeah. I've seen that. That's bizarre. The the one that really threw me for a loop was this was the year of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Mm-hmm. That was a Roger Corman color film in which Jason Robards played Al Capone. And it was it was batshit crazy. It was it was like someone the screenwriter tripped on LSD or Roger Corman cut it to such a degree where it looked like a hallucination for ninety minutes. And, you know, all Roger Corman movies are 90 minutes or less. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and it just, uh, it has the, the, the unreal cackle 
you know, the laughing, <laughs> you know, the evil, right, uh, Doctor Evil type of thing, and and um, it, it's completely in, in no no basis in reality. The entire screenplay is out of somebody's ass. But that's okay. But that's all right. But this is also the year of Point Blank, right? And that's a yeah. You know, that was another one that was on my kind of secondary list of things that I find you know personally interesting. But I would hate to call them you know really important. Maybe I'm wrong on well, that. Well, I think I think Point Blank is an, is really important. For 1967, I mean, I, I don't want to push Into the Heat of the Night out of the top spot. I mean, that's an important film culturally. Uh-huh. But if we're talking about the power of a movie and the influence that it has over time and people just saying, oh, my God, that was just a badass film, Point Blank takes the cake in this, this list. I mean, there are other ones here. Two for the Road, the famous mm-hmm. film with Audrey Hepburn and, and uh, Albert Finney. Reflections in a Golden Eye, John Huston film, uh, How I Won the War mm-hmm. uh, with uh, John Lennon is this year, Wait Till Dark, another Hepburn film. The Producers. The Producers, yeah. A, a film that's famous today. Yeah. Uh, and in in this entire list, maybe The Producers is more well-known than the popu- in the popular mind oh, I, than The Graduate. Oh, I can't see how that's true. No? No. I mean, I can't see how that's true. I mean, it was a Broadway play. They remade it like 10 years ago. Yeah, but I bet you if you ask most people on the street, they will think of Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I mean, that... that yes, it, it all derives from Everyone this, knows, right. Everyone knows that's a remake. Yeah, no, I don't know if that's true. It was a Broadway play for 10 years that came from that. I, yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know. I just yeah. don't... I don't have that much faith. In Cold Blood. Mm-hmm. Truman Capote. Yeah, very, very dour film. Mm. Very serious uh, the famous Doctor Doolittle, which took a shit this year, which almost sunk MGM. That that came out here, and then of course the infamous Magical Mystery Tour, <laughs> which is derided as probably the worst film any rock band has ever made, ever. And I was about to say that is obviously right up your alley from it's, a interest perspective. Well, yeah, it's right up my alley. It's got a couple of really good scenes in it. And I'll only spend time on this because I am a Beatles fan. But you know, there's there's this enormous. I'm a Beatle maniac, but there's this there's this fantastic, entirely, I don't even know, heavily choreographed dance scene, in which the four of them are in white tail tuxedos, pulling off this very complicated uh, one shot, and they're singing uh, "Your Mother Should Know" that Paul McCartney wrote. Mm. And they're doing uh, turns and dancing. And they're all doing it very slow, but it's all four of them at the same time. And they're going up the staircase and down the staircase and across. And it's all done in one shot. And the, it is so cheesy <laughs> and unbelievably campy. They didn't even try to hide it. They played it up. And the entire time, John Lennon has this extraordinarily shit-eating grin on his face because he knows how exactly horrible this all is right and he's just taking it in it's like and this is gonna be terrible he he's enjoying how terrible it is and even more than that he's enjoying it extra because it was never his idea it was paul's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that there's there's another scene in which um these two people that are on the magical mystery tour they're in a restaurant and they're 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 ordering dinner it's a standard restaurant scene and she orders spaghetti and th- this lady is I mean, fat like orca fat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just made. There's no not big boned. An immensely She's, huge human. Oh my god! She takes up two seats on the bus. Blah blah blah. 
for real. I'm not just saying that in, in the, in the magical mystery tour bus, she takes up two seats, but so John Lennon is the waiter. So he comes over, takes the order, leaves, comes back and he's got a fucking wheelbarrow full of spaghetti and parks it right in front. And, and of course he's trying to keep from laughing. Mm-hmm. And George Harrison says, this is the funniest thing that he's seen any of them do in their entire career. Grabs a shovel. Lennon grabs a shovel and just throws it into the spaghetti and just starts like piling it on her plate. And this woman is arguing with her husband across the table. And of course he's, he's about as thin as Sonny Bono. Of course he is. Right. And, and they're having this conversation totally ignoring the fact that Lennon is just piling on this wheelbarrow of spaghetti on the table. Right. With a shovel. It's, those are the only, other than that, skip this fucking film. (laughs) It's bad. What, what do you see in 1967 that really pops out? Oh, that's really it. I mean, we've covered the ones that really grabbed my attention. You know, there's, uh, you know, relative to 57, the foreign influx isn't as interesting, you know, to me. I mean, right. They, it exists. I mean, Del Jure is a highlight in that regard for me. Okay, so I, I don't want to take a, too much of a tangent here, but, sure. I mean, this is important to me since you brought up Belle du Jour. Because mm-hmm. you, you told me about that film when we were in college. Right. And I, I saw it on the on the foreign rack in Blockbuster or Hollywood Video, wherever it was. And, oh, this film. Oh, Dave's told me about this film. I'll take it. So I took it home and I watched it. Okay, It's not your bag. It's, it's not my bag. But you're going to have to explain that to me a little bit. Oh, I don't know if I can. It's just one of those that, for some reason, I found it interesting. Um, you know, especially from when I saw it, which was probably... I guess 20 years later, which is crazy because now 20 years ago is 1987. But it's one of those where it seemed like it was shockingly perverse and subversive for what I imagined the time to be. Right. And Catherine Deneuve is just shockingly attractive. And they just kind of treat her like, well, not as respectfully as you would like. Yeah, well, the, the, the mud-throwing scene where yeah. they're throwing mud on her face yeah. and then she's tied up in a park. Right, and, and it's just and – it uh, and I have no idea how accurate it is to any single woman's fantasies, which a lot of it is, you know, this woman's fantasies. It's mm-hmm. nonsense or it's 100% accurate. I have no idea. Last time I was a woman was never. But I just remember it being a very interesting movie, and I find it fascinating to the day. Yeah, she gets off on being degraded. Uh-huh. Which, we know that's the thing with some people. For sure. It, that's true. Yeah. And whether or not it's a disorder, I couldn't tell you because I'm not a psychoanalyst. Oh, it's probably a disorder. I mean, that's not healthy stuff. No. Right? So, I mean, no. by default, it's almost got to be a disorder. But I just remember it being a kind of the juxtaposition between her classic beauty and the things that were happening. And it wasn't pornographic. It was getting there, but it wasn't there yet. Yeah. And, I don't think there's any nudity in the film. Uh, if, there, if there is, it's so fleeting. It's more of just suggestive stuff is my recollection. But it is one of those that just kind of stuck with me. And it's probably a combination of what I was expecting, my age, etc. It's just kind of always stuck with me as something that was notable. Yeah. And once again, this is one of those things like you couldn't shoot that movie now. Oh, I would certainly there's, think not. There's no fucking way. No. I just saw two two movies that were basically uh, conceived and shot in the Me Too period, mm-hmm. which I think that were past. Uh, I, I think that were past. I yeah, don't know. But... But, you know, The Last Duel and uh, Last Night in Soho, which I want to get to to talking sure. about later. And, uh, I mean, there's no way that you could conceive of this idea and put it through now. The the real trick of that film, uh, after wondering where the fuck is this going for about an hour and 50 minutes, 
is at the very end with spoilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, her husband is 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 uh, I believe shot in the back and paralyzed and can't see and. He's comatose and he's in a wheelchair and it's all her fault. Right. And she's sitting at home uh, like needle needle knitting, like mm-hmm. just like any good wife is now. And then the camera pulls back and he gets out of the chair and he's like, you want some tea? And he's pouring her like a martini or something and shaking her and, and he's catering to her. And that's her fantasy. Right. Is that this had never happened. That that was that was a mind fuck. That was like, holy shit. That because the, the film just just jumped off the ledge because you'd been introduced to her fantasies before mm-hmm. and all of her fantasies were were really degrading and then to be hit with that like jesus christ she really took a turn yeah it's just it's just a weird flick yeah but i mean it's one of the, those i just find it's just to me for whatever reason i just find it interesting that's very interesting there's no doubt about that 1977 which is one that i was really at high hopes for you know I, I would think that this would be the main challenger to to 87. Ironically, I don't think it is. You've well, got some, you know, certified classics. There's the obvious big boys. Right. You got Star Wars. You got Close Encounters. You got Annie Hall. You got, you know, Saturday Night Fever, which is not my cup of tea, but it was undeniably ginormous. That was an enormous moneymaker, oh, yeah. too. They shot that for nothing, and it made millions. Right, and then you've got some really interesting other things, like, you know, Sorcerer, yeah, came out then. Same same weekend as Star Wars. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and that's why. Not, I, amazingly enough, I did not see that opening weekend. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, William Friedkin went on to the Projection Booth podcast, okay, uh, on the Sorcerer episode and and talked about it, which I, I couldn't believe it. But they he wanted a Blu-ray out of it, so I think he was prepping interest for trying to get a get it transferred to blu-ray mm-hmm. and he was name dropping you know tarantino loves this fucking film yeah it's a great movie all that it's a fantastic movie but it's not star wars but he specifically talked about how uh what killed it was star wars yeah he was very nice about saying i'm not saying anything against george i'm not saying anything about you know but that's why my movie didn't do anything and, and that's probably accurate and then you've got a racer head which is a fucked up movie I, I've never seen that either. I've only seen bits and pieces. I've never seen the whole thing now, all the way Is through. that Lynch? It's a Lynch. I think it's his first That's film. his first one? First feature film. That's the dude with the Jufro that looks mm-hmm. like Kid and Play? Yeah, that has uh, an abomination for a child. <laughs> it's a fucked up, probably not pleasant movie, frankly. Well, we're going to have to talk about David Lynch and Dune later. We need to talk about October and what a what an amazing year for film October was this year. For this past year, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, and you got Smokey and the Bandit. Which is really terrible, and the, I love it. The second highest earner that year, $126 million. That was my grandfather's favorite movie. Uh, mine, too. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's a crazy, stupid, entertaining movie. I mean, watching Jackie Gleason just be this obscene monster the whole time is eminently entertaining, and I would watch it now. He's a racist. Oh, yeah. He's a misogynist. Oh, yeah. He's he's the worst father-in-law that anyone could ever have. Oh, yeah. You're immediately in Sally Field's pocket. Mm-hmm. Sally Field, by the way, in, in this area, like 75 to 85. She's beautiful and sexy as and, hell. Yeah. And she actually, in one of her films, she did a nude scene, which mm-hmm. like really turned everybody's head because this was Gigi, the, right. the nun, you know. Um, but so Star Wars made $221 million. Smoking the Bandit, $126 million. So Star Wars... Made basically a hundred, like almost twice as much as Smokey and the Bandit. Basically, you lapped think. it. Yeah, and again, this is this is something that's happening. Mm-hmm. 
the the blockbuster. Yeah. Right. Uh, Close Encounters, like you said, 116 million. Uh, the Goodbye Girl was this year. I've never seen that. So Neil Simon start. Yeah, there's, it's yeah, pretty good. I've, I, seen. I've seen like ten Neil, Neil Simon movies. I bet you that's something you wouldn't have guessed and you, unless you looked it up. No, it just seems like they all star Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, he definitely seems to be his. He seems to be the Neil Simon person. He's and when, Niro for you know <laughs> Simon's you know Scorsese. And when he aged out, they just replaced him with Matthew Broderick. Mm-hmm. So, um, A Bridge Too Far, which. I, I mean, for me, like I really enjoy that ensemble. That's like the last World War II ensemble. Thing. Right. It was the right. last big kind of one like that before yeah. we were getting into the disaster genre. Robert Ryan was in that with Robert Redford. You know, it was it had amazing stuff. James Caan. Then, of course, The Deep. Yes, Jacqueline Bissett. Thank yeah. You. Thank you very much exactly. for making this movie, Jacqueline Bissett. Robert Shaw, one of his last films. Mm-hmm. And then Nick Nolte. The reason I bring this up is... Who had more illicit drugs or alcohol in their system? Holy shit. Between the three of them? Uh-huh. I'm guessing it might be Nick Nolte. It might be Nick Nolte. He might have edged out Robert Shaw. It'd be tough, Just, but he might be able to pull it off. Robert Shaw was a famous alcoholic who popped a shitload of pills. Oh, yeah. He was good at what he did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I bring up The Deep because The Deep has this really... Uh, challenging story i don't even know if i can recreate it but it, you know it was a it was a book and orson welles it's turned a it, film, isn't it or a benchley book isn't it or am i a, totally mistaken I, it might be a benchley book okay but orson welles had adapted it into a screenplay and he actually hired uh, john houston to write it and it much more mirrored um dead calm the australian okay. yeah, film yeah. with sam neill and Nicole Kidman. Right. And Billy Zane. He's a yeah. badass dude. Yeah. And, and uh, Orson got John Huston to, to, to play the lead role. And then this was back when Orson actually was, was not that heavy in the late 60s. And they went out on a boat in the in the Aegean Sea. And the Aegean? Was it the Tyrrhenian? Whatever the fuck the sea is in between Italy and Yugoslavia. Okay. It's, it's off the coast of Croatia. They shot out there for like two weeks with little, no money, whatever. And then one of the cast members died and then they ran out of money and they couldn't find These someone to, right. And so, so it, it was never finished. I think there's an hour of the film somewhere in the world that's never been put never together. Be right. And this will be interesting in, in 50 years when they settle all of these rights and all of these, you know, we can take any, anybody's image who's been dead for a hundred years and do everything we want. It'd be interesting to see. If someone could complete this film, I'll never see it. Yeah, but, but it was so. It was this was eventually the deep was contorted from that, and then dead calm was from the original source material. And then the spy who loved me, enormously popular film mm-hmm. at the time. Oh God, which was what a lot of us remember George Burns from, which is really unfair to George Burns. You know, George and. Crazy. We're, we're phenomenal. I've listened to their radio shows. It's authentically funny. I, I really enjoy it. And it's just kind of sad. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, he's oh, God. But, I mean, I'm – and was that John Denver was in that yeah. one? Yeah. Okay. So – and that's just crazy in and of itself. Yeah, the idea of John Denver, Denver as a yeah. movie star. And, yeah. and like a big one. Yeah. But, Huge. And, and I mean, that was the ninth most popular film that year in terms of box really? office. Yeah. It was. Wow, I guess that makes sense. But 41 million. 
But I remember, oh God, oh God, book two, book oh two. God, you devil. Yeah, I remember those two. The, that whole that whole thing. And George Burns seemed to be fucking everywhere in, oh, yeah. in the in in that tenure. He did a bank robbery movie called Going Out of Style, mm-hmm. Going in Style yeah. with uh, uh, Lee Strasberg, the famous. Uh, teacher. teacher from from I believe it was Columbia or the Actor Studio. The Actor Studio, yeah. And and he'd only been in like one other film, which was like the Godfather Part Fucking Two. He played <laughs> Hyman Roth, right. you know. So um, that was that was a, a bit of a shock. But you're right. Like I remember a radio station um, here in Houston every every Sunday morning for about three hours they would play these classic classic episodes, and they played George and Gracie. Mm-hmm. So. The now Annie Hall took film, Woody Allen took director for it, Richard Dreyfus for the Goodbye Girl, Diane Keaton for Annie Hall, mm-hmm. Jason Robards for a film called Julia, Vanessa Redgrave for the same. Screenplay went to Annie Hall. But what I really want to talk about nineteen seventy seven is the <laughs> Bo Derek. <laughs> Richard Harris was in that. It was yes, Bo was. Derek and Orca. I believe so. Oh my god! I saw it as a, I saw it in the theater. That was kind of you boring. saw it in the theater. Yeah. Oh, that had to be special. My dad took me. It's oh. like wow. Okay. <laughs> the biggest Jaws ripoff of them all. Uh huh. However, what I was about to say was the extraordinary amount of shit that was released in 1977. Okay. The the pile of shit is enormous. And I have to say, you're not allowed to say "damnation alley." That's not that's not on here. Okay, good. Okay, but that had killer cockroaches. Oh Another movie I saw in the theater with my dad. Killer cockroaches in Las Vegas. Man-eating cockroaches. Well, they have to be somewhere. In Las Vegas, makes a lot of sense. But as I say, there's an enormous amount of shit coming out in 1977. I also have to say, first of all. I think I've seen most of these. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> because of our age group. And, and TBS. Thank yeah. you. And and secondly, I can't believe I'm saying this. Some of them are not that bad. Which doesn't mean they're good. It doesn't. Yeah. I mean, Airport 77. Eh. I mean, yeah, that's pretty bad. Black Sunday. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, the Duelist was this year, Ridley Scott's first and, film, that, which that I, is, haven't, I haven't seen. I haven't seen it either. But if you look back at this, there's a lot of interesting directors whose first films or first major films occurred this year. But go on. Okay, the Gauntlet. Mm-hmm. I like that. Grand Theft Auto, which I think was Rod Howard's. I bet I don't know. Yeah, Ron Howard. Ron right? Howard. No, his first one was Boxcar Bertha, but that no, was no, like no, a no. Rod. Boxcar Bertha was Scorsese. Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I uh, think you're. I think you're right. That, uh, I think that was Grand little, Theft Auto. I think little, it was a Roger Corman film. Yeah, a Little Opie Cunningham. Yeah. Hills Have Eyes. Yes. West West Craven. Jabberwocky, which was it was uh, Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Uh, Jubilee, which I haven't seen. I know of it, but I don't, I've never seen it. Kentucky Fried Movie, which that is, the, is amazing. Yes, Fistful of Yen is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my favorite is the audacity of the last one, the which last is sketch. at the big gym. Yes, the uh, uh, that was the bravest stuntman on the planet is my recollection. Oh, please tell me more. I, oh, I, I don't please, remember I, this. I can't. You oh can't. no, I can't. I, I will tell you off air. Well, well, it was. It's, it's like terrible. <laughs> it's really unbelievable. Kind of sit there slack jawed. It's but it, it's hilarious because it was so audacious. <laughs> the Zucker brothers had this enormous ability to just not give a shit oh, yeah. and, and push the comedy to the edge. I remember seeing an interview with Robert Stack, and I think it was like uh, 
uh, it was in the late nineties and they were talking about uh, airplane mm-hmm. and, and Robert stack was, I can't believe the shit that we got away with back then. He's like, and I didn't know any of this. You know, we shot a movie for two weeks <laughs> and then I went to the theater <laughs> so I can't and, believe <laughs> and the L Al plane comes out on the runway and it had fucking beard on it with like these curls on the side and a hat on top <laughs> and it looked like an Orthodox Jew and Robert Stack goes, how in the hell did they get away with this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. It really yeah. is. And the funny thing, of course, the Zucker brothers are Jewish. The funny thing is, you know, half of Israel is laughing their ass oh, off yeah. too, right? Oh, yeah. They think that shit is funny. Because it is funny. <laughs> like, what better way to represent <laughs> the Israeli state than to put a hat on a plane, an El Al plane? <laughs> of course. And you know where it's going. New oh, York. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. And you also have Exorcist Two, The Heretic. Which is apparently, I've never seen it. Yeah. But it's supposedly a remarkably, shockingly bad failure. Right. So I, I've actually seen this okay. film. Is it, yeah. Pray tell. Is it as bad as they say? It is, it is immaculately made. Okay. And it is a piece of shit. <laughs> it is John Borman, if I remember correctly. Yeah, John Borman, yeah. Yeah, so this is another, and if you really want to deep dive into it, uh, there's another episode of The Projection Booth that spends like four fucking hours on this movie. On this movie? Yeah, and they all say the same thing, like, this is this was a noble effort. <laughs> it's like exquisite <laughs> and yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's John Borman, I think, he, I think he did Point Blank uh, yeah, he with did. Lee he Marvin, did. right? Yeah. So he knew what he was doing. No, he did Excalibur, which is a... Well, it's a touchstone of my life because, man, you're, 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 if anybody's actually listening, they're going to be like, oh, this guy's a perv because Helen Mirren. <laughs> oh, but, yeah, yeah. No, I, Helen Mirren was amazing. Yeah, she, yeah, her, she um And she's always been an amazing actress, but uh, and she's always had this uh, sexuality associated. Mm-hmm. Even when she's old, like, I see her in red, and I, I know she's in her 70s, but, that's but like I, I can't get her out of my mind. Like, yeah. she's, she still exudes that. That 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 feeling, and, you know, and there are women that do the Audrey Hepburn, Kathleen Turner, and, and there's dudes, and I know Nicole yeah. would leave me for Harrison Ford right now. So yeah, I mean it's the same type of thing. It's just like okay, Lauren Bacall, uh, but of course she was in Caligula. That was mm-hmm. the big one that everybody remembered, and everyone's just amazed that anyone had a career after that. But uh, then, this was also Pumping Iron, the year of Pumping Iron. Yeah, Slapshot. Oh, I love Slapshot. Sorcerer. And like we said before, and the amazing piece of shit, <laughs> Telephone. Telephone. <laughs> I've actually seen that, too. Not in a long time. I think it was a kid when I saw that. But it's basically a dude waiting around for the phone to ring and then the credits roll. It's like, oh, wow, riveting. He's killing people with a telephone. <laughs> telephone, coming to a theater near you. Now, see, there are two other bonkers horror movies, which I've never seen. In 77? Yeah. That, you know, I, I know by reputation, but I've never seen, so I can't speak to them. But they are classics. At least Suspiria certainly is. Right. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. But, I mean, it's every, every, everybody who, everybody knows it, right? And then there's also House, that Japanese crazy horror movie. Yes. Which, again, I've not seen. You haven't seen that either. Now, was that remade into the house? In no, the no, eight? no, 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 it's, no, it's different. Not, it's not William Cat. It's, it's like supposedly some psychedelic wax Did you say William Cat? Yeah, that's he, he was the, the actor. Version. Well, he was in the house movie that you were just, re- just referencing. Yeah, not the Japanese movie. Right. Okay. Okay. But what else was he in? Uh, was he in Friday the Thirteenth? No, that was Kevin Bacon. Y- yes. No, uh, William Cat was in Grace. He was in Carrie. That's where I know yeah. him from. Yeah, he was Travolta's friend. Yeah, he was the one who was the uh, prom king. Right. 
Speaking of Carrie, just short aside, there was again like a like a five hour episode. Yeah, four and a half hours. Yeah, projection oh, nice, booth. Nice shirt, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's wearing yeah, a projection booth t shirt to show my peeps some honesty. Okay. Um, so should we bypass eighty seven, or do you have more seventy sevens on? Let's there? go. Let's go straight to uh, ninety seven. Okay. And then we'll we'll hit eighty seven on the on the back end. So ninety seven um, was one that I found, if I recall correctly. Kind of a thank God. Where's my list? I apologize. Ninety-seven is crazy. Yeah, but I, in terms of just revenue alone. Yeah, but I mean, what does that mean? Titanic, like, one point eight billion right dollars. I mean, and, and Titanic is actually you know a good movie. Lost World, terrible movie. Sixty-eight million. So you're not talking about doubling it. You're talking about not even tripling it. This is, this is eighteen times, right? No, it's a the number two spot. It was absolutely a, it's a it's it's something that is hard to imagine how big it was because the monoculture doesn't exist. But this is what gets me about this list and and the top earners list. Number three, Men in Black, dog shit. Tomorrow never dies, dog shit. Air Force One, dog shit. No, that's not dog shit. It's trash, but it's not dog shit. Okay. As good as it gets, trash or dog shit? Probably trash. Liar, liar, trash or dog shit? Not that it didn't have That's its funny moments. My, it's probably my favorite Jim Carrey comedy, but it's still trash. My best friend's wedding, trash or dog shit? Eh, I mean, it's probably dog shit. Okay, here's here's the first one where I'm like, oh, well, this isn't trash or dog shit. It's not may not be a really good movie. Right. Fifth Element came in number nine. That is a crazy movie. I don't know if I I, don't, I still to the from the day I first saw it till now I still don't know if I like that movie or not. But it is imaginative. It is got nothing but ingenuity going for it. It's one of Nicole's favorite science fiction movies is crazy i mean it is a lunatic movie it is it is absolutely bananas yeah gary oldman with the alabama accent is and gary crazy. oldman and bruce willis never meet in that movie they shoot at each other no they don't no yeah they never oh. they never cross paths in the entire movie that's pretty crazy full monty number 10 that that was a that's force okay. that's now boogie nights was that this year fucking that, year yeah and that, boogie nights is tremendous <sighs> As you saw, the game. Oh yeah, Fincher. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Starship Troopers is oh personal un- favorite, undeniable, yeah. a masterpiece. I mean, Event Horizon, I like actually. Pass. Oh. Crash came out this year. Uh, Hard which, which one? You're a PTA which, which, fan. Which, which, which the first uh, Crash? The oh, the, the one? yeah the that's fuck the wound in your leg Crash. Interesting flick. I don't know if it's good. I couldn't say I enjoyed it, but it's interesting. Spader's right. performance is amazing. Yeah. The the Holly real Hunter was a black job. She was, but you know, uh, I occasionally I think about Crash. It's got some amazing visuals in it mm-hmm. that really bring across Cronenberg's point. Like I remember the initial Crash where James Spader's like dropped something in his car and then he hit he hits another car head on. And he's wearing a seatbelt, so he stops immediately. But then the first thing you see actually is a body fly through his windshield, mm-hmm. and this dude dies in the passenger seat, like breaks his neck or something. And he looks forward, and he came out of a car that just hit him, and he was the passenger. And the driver was Holly Hunter. And uh, they're looking at each other, and her seatbelt saved her life too, 
but it ripped her shirt open and her right breast is hanging out. Right. I remember this. And it was the, it was this amazing moment where Cronenberg just in like, and it wasn't for very long. I think it was like a two second shot, but it, it instantly was relating the crash with sexuality. Right. And from that moment on, I didn't have any problem understanding the movie. No, I mean, but it's, it's definitely a weird trip. It, it is. But, you know, there were a lot of people I saw that I met that I saw that movie. That What the fuck is that movie about? That movie is confusing. I don't – that movie is sick or it's depraved or it's whatever. But if – but that shot, to me, like if you understand that, that one two-second shot, then you've, you've got it. You don't right. feel that way. I still don't like the movie. But – But I understand it. Right. But you do have L.A. Confidential, which is – Oh, masterpiece. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is probably the best movie of that entire year. And that also had, it also had Jackie Brown, which is a movie I desperately need to revisit because I haven't seen it since the theater. And I remember walking out being incredibly disappointed because it was I, – I had – it built up in my head what it was supposed to be, and that's not what I got. So I need to see it again because I do think it's much better than I ever remember. My, that's my son's favorite Tarantino movie. Yeah. And we talked about this before. How you know he saw it without the baggage, mm-hmm. and he thought, "Oh my God, that's yeah, the best." If you, right? if you don't see, if you see in that range, I can see where easily where it would. But I mean, there were people that were waiting for two years or something, or mm-hmm. three years. It was you know, one was Pulp Fiction was ninety four, so yeah, ninety four, right. ninety five, ninety six. I mean, yeah, three. I mean, they were like, "Oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be." And they, I think the buildup just couldn't. Yeah, well, know. we were expecting. Like I said, what we got was not what we were expecting, which doesn't mean we didn't get what we deserved. Yeah, and you have Face Off, which is pass. Oh. That hurts. How can you pass on Face Off? What? Ah! God, ah! I mean, I like John Woo. Don't pause the bad guys. I Okay, oh, I'm not saying it's not a good movie. You kind of implied it when you said pass. I, have, I don't care for it. Uh, I mean, th- there are things that at the time I thought was really good. Um, Nicholas Cage like grabbing that girl's ass in yeah, the beginning. Yeah, he's a priest. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I thought that was funny at the time. Now I just think, I mean, I don't remember the scene exactly. I mean, what are the chances that girl was a minor? Does that matter? It doesn't. Well, you it kind of plays into what the character is, right? The character is like the ultimate scumbag. Oh. So it kind of it's in character. The overacting on both of their parts. The, it's what makes it. It's I what am it, Caster Troy. And, <laughs> no. All right, we shall revisit our personal it, thoughts on it, that particular It movie. did have, oh no, that's what this podcast is all about. It did have moments like, uh, no more drugs for that guy. <laughs> that it was... had doves, it had slow motion, it had mirror shootouts, it had, you know. It, it, I, uh... it was like a De Palma film, only faster. Actually, yeah. No, that's probably part of the reason I may like it. No, I mean, I, I do think it's, it's actually, I think it's a masterpiece. I really, <laughs> I can un, I unironically say that. <laughs> all John Woo movies. This well, okay. well, of all the American John Woo movies, is by far the best. Oh, I, that, that Mission Impossible he made was pretty, pretty that bad. Was, God, I wanted yeah. to like that movie. Yeah, I wanted to, I too. convinced myself for years I liked it, and it turns out I was wrong. Okay. I mean, Hard Target, I guess, was embarrassingly enough his second best. Yeah. Broken Arrow, didn't he do Broken Arrow? He did do Broken Arrow, but I think Hard Target might be better. I, or at least I might enjoy it. I, I like, I think I, that's the one with Christian Slater yeah. and Travolta. And Travolta, yeah. I think I like that one. Yeah. In Contact was out this this year, 97. 
Yeah, so you got to tell your your funny story about contact. Oh where God, I don't know what that is. It was it was years later, and, uh, and I said, "Did you see contact?" And you said, "Yeah, yeah, I saw it in the theater." And I said, uh, uh, "So did you like it?" And you said, "Well, it didn't change my life or anything." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, "Well, I wasn't expecting <laughs> Matthew McConaughey and Jodie Foster to change your life, but then you had a great story." I don't even remember. I swear, yeah. I don't remember it. About how you were coming out of the theater with Nicole. And you were um, like, yeah, it's okay, Flick, it's all right. This guy behind you or ahead of you was talking to his date. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I think that movie just changed my life. <laughs> it was a pretty powerful <laughs> film in the time, for sure. An- another another great analysis on, on the projection booth, if anyone has a, has a chance to look it up. I'm going to try to limit me my, myself saying that. Okay. We're on ninety seven still. We are, we are, but we can buy. Okay, come your close, close your your date it. film is on here. Yeah, Lost Highway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's first date I took my wife to. Yeah, there's a theme here because uh, I took my wife. Our first date was Malice. Okay. Okay, which you know, nothing nothing better than than seeing Gwyneth Paltrow with her mm-hmm. neck broken in a ditch for for your first date. With your future wife, my brother and his wife, their first date movie was uh, Fatal Attraction. Ah. Yeah. So I sense a theme going on here. Yes. Okay. Uh, Cube was actually a pretty good um, little science fictional horror movie from the day. Interesting Cube? Movie. Cube. Never saw it. Pretty interesting. Austin Powers was, was this year. That was a huge flick. Breakdown. Which was like a desert noir, or at least it tried to be. Yeah. Uh, this was also the year of Con Air. Yeah. So. <laughs> and now. Put the bunny down. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go too into Con Air uh, other than, an, again, another one of my son's favorite films. But Simon Pegg did a movie, I don't know, I guess about 15 years ago. And I, I wish I could remember the name of it. I'm not going to spend time looking it up now. But effectively what he was doing is he was he had a blog in his little town in England mm-hmm. that had millions of followers. And this is back when you, you did that with blogs. This is before Facebook. This is before Twitter. And people just go to, to websites directly and read p- other people's thoughts. This blog was just world famous. Jeff Bridges, out <laughs> of everybody in the fucking world, is running this high-end men's magazine in New York City. He's the publisher. Okay. And he said that uh, he read this blog and he laughed his ass off for a whole day just going through all of his posts. And he says, I have to have this guy on my staff. So he gives Simon Pegg a job in New York City. So he goes from this small town in rural England where basically he's Sean from Shaun of the Dead, right? right. And then he's now he's writing for this hoity-toity like New Yorker type of magazine in Manhattan, and it is a recipe hijinks ensue. My favorite scene is some elitist bitch on staff is tasked with being his babysitter. Show him around town, get him to meet people, give him some experiences that he can write about. They go to this art gallery which you know was filled with these beret-wearing, left-hand backward-smoking, bohemian assholes from the East Village who know everything there is to know about everything 
about art, including film. And they all start talking about their favorite film, which you know one is going to say Bergman. Right. One is going to say Hitchcock. And the third one is going to say a European director that no one's ever heard of. And everyone goes, who? And Simon Pegg is standing somewhat nearby. And he's drinking a beer. And he spits. And everyone's drinking like wine, right? Mm-hmm. He's drinking a beer. He spits out his beer. And he says, bullshit. The best movie ever made was Con Air. <laughs> Simon West killed it. <laughs> it's got everything you could ever want. <laughs> and he might not be wrong. <laughs> and, of course, my favorite scene is... Um, Cyrus the virus, mm-hmm. John Malkovich coming off the plane and saying, my exploits in prison is penal lore. <laughs> you know, so it did have, it had moments, but, uh, you know, I've, I've never been a Michael Bay fan. Oh, I like Michael one of Bay his. Michael Bay didn't make it. Oh, really? Who? Yeah. Simon West. Simon West made it uh-huh. under the direction of Michael Bay. Oh, most certainly. Most yeah. certainly. Well, Simon West did The Rock, too. No, that was Michael Bay. That was Michael Bay. Yeah. It's the same movie, isn't it? That is not the same movie. Don't make me mad. You've already pushed the <laughs> buttons with his face off. Pass. And then you also have uh, Good Burger, of course, which is a classic. But you have Copland and Chasing Amy, which are both, you know, inherently. Copland is exceptional. Yeah, and Chasing Amy is exceptional as well. It may, it may be one of those that is viewed through the prism of today as, you know, uneducated and. You know, brutish, whatnot, but it's you know, it's damn it's a damn good movie. It's probably Kevin Smith's best. Well, he won the uh, best film at the Independent Spirit Awards that year, I think, if I, I remember correctly. Um, no, he's got, he's got it in him. What he does with it, I. Well, it's hard to say. You can you can yeah, yeah debate it. Uh, and then you got Trash Like the Saint, Devil's Own, which didn't even have a script. After it was <laughs> shot, Gross Point Blank. That's a great movie. That's a pretty good flick. Yeah, Her that's Majesty Mrs. Movie. Brown. Underworld is this year. Okay. And it all went downhill from there. We got Speed 2. Wag the dog, Mortal Kombat, Annihilation. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's one of those where it's pretty top-heavy. Because well, U-Turn's actually an interesting flick. That's that's Oliver Stone. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty Sean Penn. I think that's the only movie that, um, not to harp on the subject again, that mm-hmm. Jennifer Lopez did nudity for. Oh, uh, I, I know that people very specifically went to see that film because of that. Because of that, I know because I was one of them, <laughs> and I was really, I was really disappointed in the film as a whole because it just seemed like it was the same, it was the same shit as uh, JFK and Natural Born Killers, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of changing of film stock and exposures and everything else. But I, th- I thought it was a pretty straightforward, albeit presented in a very convoluted manner, story. Which the other ones were not that. This was like a real, okay, like going back to Platoon. It's like, I'm just going to tell a very straightforward, you know, simple, straightforward story. And I thought that was refreshing from him at the time. It was. I thought Sean Penn was good in it, but I, I just thought, you know, is it necessary? I know that Oliver Stone can use one camera. I've seen him do it before. And I was just hoping he would ever he would get back to it just for one film. It didn't make sense to change it, particularly the saturation no. rates and the aperture rates. Like, why Why are you changing that? No, at the time, I mean, I need to watch it again. But it is one of those that, at the time, it's like, well, this seems like way more than it needs to be. And I think that was the end of his run. Like, he he was running pretty hard since Salvador and right. Scarface. And I think that was, the U-turn was where, base, and, and I don't know, like it might have even been a box office success because it, it didn't cost that much. No, it would be one of those that by default it probably did fine. Yeah. 
But, you know, after that, I mean, there's not a whole lot that really jibes for me. Well, so it seems like when we turn the century, Mm -hmm. it's few and far between in terms of impact. It could be because it's closer to us. But 2007. Well, see, that's that's the one that I think. Okay, let's just jump ahead to 17. Really? Yeah, let's just do that. Okay. I don't, I don't know if there's anything in 17 that means much to me, to be well, honest Well, on the high gross end, the highest grossing film of 2017 was The Last Jedi. $1.3 billion. Right. The next one was Beauty and the Beast, the live action. $1.2 billion. Then The Fate of the Furious, $1.2 billion. Despicable Me 3, $1 billion. Jumanji Remake, $962 million. Spider-Man Homecoming, $880 million. Uh, Wolf Warrior 2. Is this global box office, I presume? Yeah, $870. Guardians Volume 2, $863. Ragnarok, $853. Wonder Woman, $822. So this is... Everything in, in the top is $800 million and up, whereas 2007, it was $400 million up. Well, is it one of those... I mean, let's make sure we're doing apples to apples, right? Because that sounds like it was global box office. No, I'm sorry. It's, this is this is only domestic. That I, I pulled this off a of box office mojo, and they separate it. But what was that number nine movie? Ragnarok? No, no. Or ten. Wonder Woman. Well, you had one in there I mean, I literally have never heard of. Yeah, Wolf Wolf Warrior Two. I think I think this is a typo on my end. Oh, okay. What I don't even know. Warrior. Was there another movie that said Warrior Two? Wasn't the Road Warrior? No. And they didn't make a sequel to that. Uh, I don't know what movie. the fuck this is. That's why I'm wondering if it's a global box office. Thing. No, I so I I, thought, I, I thought, wrote something wrong down. Okay, because I thought Titanic made a billion worldwide. Or am I it, totally it did it did it did yeah. But this is like a gradual scale, whereas the others, not necessarily so. Gotcha. Uh, the best film this year was Shape of Water. Like, this is just a weird year. It's Shape a weird of year. Water. Yeah. Uh, director Del Toro, actor Gary Oldman for, um, he did Churchill. Actress Frances McDormand. I mean... Supporting actor was Sam Rockwell. Supporting actress was Allison Jane for I, Tonya. Screenplay was Jordan Peele for Get Out. Right, um, and, that, and that's probably one of the it's one of the few movies that's going to make that lasting of an impact, frankly. Well, there, this was the year of catastrophe. I mean, you had like the, the three billboards outside Ebbing, mm-hmm. Missouri. That was like the only genuine art film that broke through. That's what McDormand got the Oscar for. John Wick 2, Ghost in the Shell, live action. Going in Style, which was the remake of the one we were speaking of before. Colossal. Baby Driver. Baby Driver, I enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, but... Hollywood never made more money, but I have to say, like, out of of all of these films, how many of these are going to stick around and... Out of that top ten? Ten, twenty years... I mean, I, I just don't. It's it's hard to imagine it, right? I mean, you've got some things that I think will probably end up being classics. You have Get Out, you have Lady Bird, right? You've got, you know, oh yeah, Lady Bird is that year. Yeah, Dunkirk, which I don't particularly like, but I know is well regarded. Um, 
another movie that Tarantino loves. Yeah. It's, it's, but if you look at 97 and you look at 2017, mm-hmm. it's like but, it's night and day in terms oh, yeah. of creativity, oh, sure. in terms of a voice. For sure. I mean, you got 2049. That was in 17. Yeah, it was. Which, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. 2049 was, I mean, that, that has to be the best film on this list. It might be. For 17. I mean, I mean, I enjoyed Ragnarok, but yeah, it I mean, doesn't hold a candle. Twenty four, twenty nineteen for me either. Yeah, but yeah, for, and Logan was in seventeen, and Logan was pretty was. outstanding. Yeah, no, that was shockingly good. But it is one of those where, relative to like you were saying, ten years prior or twenty years prior, rather, it, it's not even close. So, so now you want to go back to two thousand seven? Well, we can either do seven or eighty seven. Well, let's do let's do 2007. Okay, so 2007 is the one that kind of shocked me. That I think actually, for my money, gives 87 a run for its money. Okay. Which is admittedly unanticipated. You've got Zodiac. Oh, outstanding. You've got No Country for Old Men. Outstanding. There Will Be Blood. Outstanding. You have The Mist. Scary fucking movie. No, I never saw that one. You never saw The Mist? No. Okay. You've got Hot Fuzz, which is Outstanding. crazy entertaining. That's really good. Ratatouille. No, not bad. Not bad. Uh, Michael Clayton. You've got the remake for 310 to Yuma. Fantastic. Those two, yeah. 300. Exactly. Super bad, which is a weird movie for me. You know, it's funny, but I don't know if I like it, but it may be one of those that I have to see again. You know, but I know it's... Well remembered to those that it impacted. Blades of Glory was this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In terms of a comedy, I mean, that was brilliant comedy. It may not be the best. No, no. But it was really smart. Sunshine was that year. I never saw that one. Oh, the first two-thirds are some of the best hard sci-fi I've ever seen. The Ooh. last third is very unexpected and makes you wonder why it happened. But the first two-thirds almost makes it worth it. You know, Grindhouse was yeah. that year. Yeah. Which is... That had an enormous impact this year. So... Eastern Promises was this year. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Robert Ford. Ford. You have Paranormal Activity, which is a kind of a seismic shift in the horror genre of that year. Well, you say horror. uh, This was uh, 28 Weeks Later. Yeah. Also came out this year. Wasn't that Danny Boyle? No, he did 28 Days. Yeah. Okay, so this was a sequel. Yeah, this was a sequel. Um, You had some things... I mean, you had the... Darjeeling Limited, which is my least oh. favorite Wes Anderson movie, but yeah, oh, I love than, that film. Yeah, it's still better than most movies. Yeah, you know, you yeah, know, Wes Wes Anderson's. We were talking about this before. Luke and I are watching everything in mm-hmm. preparation for the French Dispatch, which I think comes out next week. And and um, yeah, his his bad film, his bottom of the barrel film, is better than most other people's. It absolutely is. It attempts. Is. Yeah. You had um, Juno, right? Had, Juno, great, great film. You had Gone Baby Gone. I mean, this is kind of one of those last certifiably great years. And Daniel Day-Lewis got the the Oscar this year, I think, for Lincoln. Yeah, that's probably right. Right? And the Coens got it for No Country for mm-hmm. Old Men. That, that pulled the Oscar. Uh, Marianne Cotillard got it. Got it for Le'Veon Rose. Javier Bardem. For uh, No Country. Yeah. Tilda Swinton for Michael Clayton. I mean, the, Michael Clayton was like a door slammer. Right. That had the craziest finale I'd ever seen in a movie. 
where Clooney has that enormous drop jaw monologue where he just pulls out, oh, by the way, I'm George fucking Clooney. It was like that one of those moments. Like, oh, you are, like, you are one of the greatest actors are living. Yeah. I, I forgot about it. Usually you just put on a suit and you walk through a casino and I'm supposed to smile. And I got tired of doing that. But no, you, you do have unbelievable capability. You have The Kingdom, which I find an interesting movie. Oh, that's the one with uh, Jimmy Fox. and mm-hmm. um, Takes place in Saudi. Yeah, Chris Cooper. Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting Jennifer yeah. Garner. And, uh... You know, uh, that had a good one. So, I mean, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox movie, was a fucking crazy-ass movie. You know? This this was a good year. It, it, was, it was one of those that, looking back, Hot Rod is a stupid movie, which I really enjoyed. Uh, there's there's some crap, obviously. You have Hannibal Rising. You've got Fantastic Four, The Rise of the Silver Surfer. Who cares? Yeah. But you have I'm Not There, which is a pretty fascinating little movie. Yeah, that... I mean, that was edgy. Yeah. That was really edgy. So I, I find... I, I was kind of shocked at how good I thought 2007 was, especially relative to the other ones we were going through. I was like, wow, man, yeah. that actually gives a really good you know, shot. The shit that you have in 17 and, and 97 is so strong. Right, but I found 07 to be a cut above all those. That, that might be... Yeah, I'm glad we did that last. And, and you know, and then you go into 87. 87. Shockingly good. The highest grossing film of 87. Did you see this? Did you I, I didn't it? look it up from a box off perspective. Three Men and a Baby. A Leonard Nimoy film. <laughs> $167 million. I wouldn't have guessed that was the top grossing film. That's for damn sure. Fatal Attraction number two, 156. That's probably what I would have guessed was number one. Beverly Hills Cop 2, $153 million. Good Morning Vietnam, $123 million. That was uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. So. <laughs> Moonstruck, eighty million. The Untouchables, seventy-six million. Secret of My Success, sixty-six million. Stakeout, sixty-five million. People wonder why Stakeout was so popular. Why are we? Why did they make a sequel? That's why. That's why. Yeah. The big one, Lethal Weapon, sixty-five mm-hmm. million. The Witches of Eastwick, a movie I cannot stand, <laughs> sixty-three million. <laughs> Best Picture, The Last Emperor. Director, Bertolucci. Actor, Michael Douglas for Wall Street. Who's going to forget that? Actress Cher for Moonstruck. Supporting actor Sean Connery for The Untouchables. Yeah. Uh, that that took. I remember him taking the world by storm mm-hmm. when you know when he was at the Oscars. That he never went to the Oscars. Yeah. That was a huge year. Uh, actress Olympia Dukakis for Moonstruck. Mm-hmm. This is a solid year. No, it, it really is. Like I said, I'm. You know, I hate to admit it. It's probably the one that I look at and go. This is maybe have the highest percentage of movies that I like, which, you know, from the, from the top, I said, I'm going to be biased towards from my age at the time and just how it lived in my culture, right? I think I like 84 more, but I maybe in terms of I don't powerhouse, know. I think 87 just has more power. Yeah, I, I think it does. You have The Prince's Bride. You have RoboCop. Yeah. You've got, yeah. you know, Full Metal Jacket, Evil Dead 2. Predator. I mean, these are not necessarily the best movies ever made, but they're some of the most enjoyable movies ever made, at least for me. You have Dirty Dancing, which is it's better than I would ever guess. A lot of fucking people have seen <laughs> Dirty Dancing. Uh, so I wanted to go 
to to go on that theme, uh-huh. and I, I know this is going to take a little bit longer, but I think this is worth it. I wanted to go month by month okay. to to sort of display just how fucking crazy 1987 was. Mm-hmm. We should have done this maybe for 84. In January, you had in the same goddamn month, and January is one of those like wastelands. Right. It's like August. So, yeah, it just dumps People just dump shit, okay? Wanted Dead or Alive with Rutger Hauer. Radio Days, which I think was a Woody Allen produced film. Uh, I thought it was George Lucas produced. Was it? I think so. Uh, From the Hip with um, the, uh, uh, Judd uh, Nelson. Judd Nelson, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Light of Day. Michael J. Fox. With Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett. Mannequin. I love uh, that movie. Oh, great movie. Number one with a bullet with uh, Robert... Wanna... Robert Carradine and Billy D. Williams. That I don't know. Oh, man. No, I've never heard of that. Oh, movie. it's a Carol co-production. Okay. <laughs> I could see it that. is a Golan Globus <laughs> masterpiece. Actually, you know how we were texting each other mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago about the, the flash sale on Criterion? Mm-hmm. And I went on and I dropped like $140. And I got six or seven of them in. And then uh, I didn't know that, it, that that flash sale was coming. So the previous week, I bought a used copy of Number One with a Bullet. <laughs> And it, it is it's it's in the most hysterical looking case you've ever seen, with the with the worst artwork that you would just expect. You, you look at the artwork and you immediately think, this is a Golan Globus picture. Yeah, and it's it, one of those where you really miss blockbuster. It it has to be. Yeah. So I put that in the bottom of the stack, and <laughs> I I come and just unknowingly I did I didn't plan this at all. Go into the kitchen. Luke comes home from work. Hey man, I just got these films. Most of them are Criterion's. Go through them and see which ones you want to see first. Obviously. He, he just goes through, okay, this is interesting. Okay, this is, what is this? This is what we're watching tonight. Dad. And then he turns it over and he looks down at the bottom. He's like, oh, <laughs> this is a Canon Group film. This is a Golan Globe. <laughs> we're watching this first. And he fucking loved every minute of it. <laughs> So we can make fun of it as much as we want. Last one, some kind of wonderful. This this is January. Well, most of those movies are kind of trash. But it's like the best kind of trash. Yeah, well, it's trash that we like because I mean, of our age. That's true. Okay, look at February. Okay. Angel Heart. Admittedly bonkers, crazy fucking flu. Yes, that we can't stop talking no. about. Lethal Weapon. Oh, yeah. Same goddamn weekend. It's hard to imagine that that was a February movie looking back. Raising Arizona. It's, it's tremendous. Secret of My Success. Michael J. Fox was having a strong Q1. For you and me, G.I. Joe the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then Extreme Prejudice. That movie I love. With Nick Nolte. Yeah, I love him. Yeah. Powers Booth. Yeah. No, I, I, that's, that's one of my... From the great state of Texas. Yeah, that's in my top 100. Fucking love that movie. Really? Uh, unironically love that movie. My buddy and I went to go see it. And we walked out just gobsmacked, saying that was one of the best action movies I've ever seen. That was a Walter, Walter Hill flu. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, I'm interesting. I want to see it again now. I mean, it's a it's a bloodbath. I I like Walter Hill. He, he and Peter Hyams, I think, are just really undersung heroes of Hollywood. They kind of are. Yeah. Because the relic was in one of these years. Maybe it was maybe it was eighty seven. Yeah, the relic was good. Okay, yeah. March. This. <sighs> Okay, we're just going to ignore Ishtar. Okay, I'm all right, with that. all right. <laughs> just like everybody else does yeah. in this fucking world. Okay, Gardens of Stone, mm-hmm. Hot Pursuit. Okay, the John Cusack film. I remember that. Yeah, Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. Pass for me, but yeah, 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 yeah. for families loved it. Yeah, yeah. The Untouchables. 
Predator. Yep. Rich, Witches of Eastwick. Roxanne. Yep. The Serrano thing. They're remaking it again. Uh, Dragnet. Serrano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just called Serrano. And yeah. Peter Dinklage. But you said is, Serrano. It's just one of those. Like, wow. Serrano? Yeah. Did I say Serrano? You said Serrano. It's like, hey, well, it's, it's, a, a, it's, a, it's on my, it's a, my fifth beer. It's going to come out wrong. It's a pepper? Oh, it's okay. a pepper. <laughs> uh, Dragnet. Which so I think, Dan Aykroyd yeah, and, uh, uh, that, Tom Hanks? this movie is underappreciated. Yeah. I don't know how many times <laughs> I have said people against goodness and normalcy, <laughs> pagan, P H E A N. That's well, outstanding oh, police not, work I, there, I would, Friday. I, I did a YouTube search, it was probably longer ago, and I think it was probably like three, four months ago, where I was trying to find the Dragnet theme song for some reason. <laughs> As we dance around in our goatskin pants. What's wrong with what we're doing? It's like it's like I'm like I don't know why this is in my head, and I have no idea why. The nighttime is the right time. <laughs> it's like the nighttime is the right it's like, time. Why is this what I need to find now? It's like the only thing that good the internet is done. Okay, April. I still can't believe this is going on. Adventures in babysitting. Yeah, that was really good. Inner space. That was really good. Full metal jacket. Okay, that's, you know, then now you're getting into, okay, this is a independent of where I was in my life. That's a great flick. It is. Yes. That and obviously Mannequin. Jaws 4, The Revenge. Okay, that's fucking This terrible. time it's personal. personal. That bounced it out. Robocop. Uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a towering monument to greatness. La Bamba. That's yes, uh, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. I like La Bamba. Summer School. Yeah, that's, that's, terrible. <laughs> that's terrible, but I love it. Chainsaw Dave, yep. The Living Daylights, mm-hmm. and The Lost Boys. So to, to recap April, Full Metal Jacket, RoboCop, The Living Daylights, and Lost Boys in one goddamn month. Well, you're May. Talking about, you're talking about two movies that are authentically great and that two movies that we like. Right. Well, <laughs> well, I, I mean, The Living Daylights, that was a, a big deal at the time. It was yeah, it Dalton's was. first film, and... I think that... No, GoldenEye was his first. Oh, you're right. No, you're right. right. Not, not Bronx. Yeah. And the Living Daylights, I think, it has has the reputation of being the best Bond film since Connery left mm-hmm. the first time. Right. And would be the best Bond film until Casino Royale. That, that could be. So, <clears throat> May, Stakeout. Unfortunately, let's just ignore Who's Stakeout. That Girl. Yeah, okay. Easy enough. Can't Buy Me Love. Eh. Charming, Monster Squad. Yeah, good for kids. Yeah, No Way Out. Actually, a really good, you know, conspiracy theory movie. Uh, Will Patton narrated uh, the audio book of Doctor Sleep. Okay, and I've been listening to it for the last month. And um, at the the first two hours, I was like. Can someone other than Will Patton narrate this, please? And then after that, you, you start like listening to the his nuances and his acting, and I was really quite quite impressed. Dirty Dancing, The Big Easy, with Dennis Quaid, Ellen Barkin, and Ned Beatty is right. really good in this. Oh, that's right, he is in that. The Fourth Protocol. Oh, that's vaguely familiar. With uh, Pierce Brosnan okay. and uh, Michael Caine, and uh, Matt Frewer is in that. Max Hedrum. Oh, okay. That's his name? <laughs> Catch the wave. Coke. <laughs> yeah. House 2. With William Cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Mate 1. Okay, the John Sales flick. Yeah. 
Okay, so September. Wait, was that August? That feels like you jumped. May, April, May, June, July, August. I skipped three months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, something went wrong there. <laughs> I'm missing a page. Okay. Well, we'll skip forward to it's September. Probably a pretty important page. <laughs> it probably is. So, but September will blow your mind. Just four movies: Fatal Attraction. Hellraiser, mm-hmm. which we can make fun of Hellraiser, but in the horror genre, I'm not, that, I'm not making fun of Hellraiser. That, Hellraiser was an authentically frightening flick. That went through the roof. Yeah, The Principal with Jim Belushi, yeah. uh, which was as a genre pick, you know, it succeeded. And then Bestseller, which is underappreciated Hitman movie. October, let's just you know forget like father, like son. Right. Prince of Darkness. Oh, I love Prince of Darkness. Yeah, so do I. The Hidden with Kyle MacLachlan. That's a fucked up movie. The Princess Bride. That's obviously not a fucked up movie. Three O'Clock High. This is like the cult movie month. It is that. Right? November. Cry Freedom. I mean, Kevin Klein got an Oscar mm-hmm. out of that, right? Hiding Out, John Cryer. Very underappreciated. Less Than Zero. I mean, that shook everybody's house. Right. Steel Dawn, the uh, Shane remake with uh, with uh, no no, it's with uh, Patrick Swayze in a oh, post-apocalyptic that's right, that's future. Right, that's right, that's right. Uh, the Running Man, again, like an enormous movie at the time. Planes, trains, and automobiles—that stands the test of time. December, Wall Street, Eddie Murphy's Raw, Overboard, Moonstruck, The Last Emperor, Broadcast News, Empire of the Sun. Good morning, Vietnam. Now, December is kind of a cheat mm-hmm. because everyone who wins an Oscar in March, they release all their shit in December right? so that they're ready for reward season. There's but some waiting. But that's, I mean, Wall Street, Moonstruck, Last Emperor, Empire of the Sun, Good Morning, Vietnam. One month. It's, one damn month. Yeah, exactly. It's hard. Every single week there was something worth seeing. I was, I was pretty impressed with 1987. No, 87 is, like I said, I, and then you got some other ones. You got... With Nail and I, you've got... Oh, shit. Apologies. That's all right. Near Dark. Catherine Bigelow's Vampire Near Dark movie. is brilliant. Yeah, it, brilliant. It, it really is. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you, I, I can't believe you skipped the summer months, considering that you know there's going to be some big ones there. But 87, I found a really hard time arguing against from a... I mean, like I said, I'm obviously biased, but it is one of those. Wings of Desire was that year. Um, you know, the best arm wrestling movie ever and Over the Top was that year. There's some crap, though, because you have Police Academy 4, but that's always going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're making 400 movies a year. That's true. That I mean, that's your true. worldwide output. But I mean, Hollywood used to do that by themselves oh, in yeah. the 40s. That is true. No, that I think that eighty seven is an exceptional year, and actually looking looking through that, I think that eighty seven might be better than eighty four. It's just eighty four has so many memorable films that really punch through, like right. uh, Beverly Hills Cop and Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Well, that was eighty five, but I was just sold on eighty four, just being you know, the Terminator came out in eighty four. But I, I really think that eighty seven. I mean, it's it's really hard to overstate the importance of Lethal Weapon. Yeah. The, the, the only way that Lethal Weapon gets lost is next year Die Hard comes out, mm-hmm. you know. 
Which, yeah, it's, it's one of those that Lethal Weapon was the pinnacle of action movies until that, you know, paradigm changer. I mean, yeah, Die Hard is... I mean, that's a authentically classic movie. I think that we need to focus just a little bit on our obsession with Lethal Weapon. Okay. Now, I want you to start by telling us why we're obsessed with Lethal Weapon. Well, mainly because I want to know, but also mainly because I want to go over and get my phone me? so we can... You, because I need to go over and get my phone off the chargers so that we can uh, go through our letterbox in our next segment. Oh, okay. So, I mean, for me, in, Lethal Weapon is the standard bearer for buddy movies, period. You know, not buddy cop action movies, although that is obviously what it is. But it's an... The thing that made it real and interesting was that I completely bought the relationship between the two main characters the day that I saw it. There was no leaps of imagination or things that I had to work on an assumption. I just bought it because that bond between Gibson and Glover were seemingly very authentic. As far as I know, they're best friends in real life. I have no idea, but that's the way they certainly played off each other. You know, they were some of the best duos ever. And, you know, it's a, it's a Shane Black written film, which he is always kind of uh, kind of perverse but interesting. And that played into that movie as well. And I think a lot of it is that it then played into Lethal Weapon 2, which is kind of a masterpiece. You know, Lethal Weapon is a damn fine entertaining movie. But I think where I remember most fondly for itself is what it led into. With Lethal Weapon 2 was just a, you know, it it was kind of not quite on diehard level from an action 80s movie, but it's getting pretty goddamn close. Yeah, Lethal Weapon 2 was, and I, I love Lethal Weapon 2 mm-hmm. as a sequel, but it was much more closer to diehard than it was to Lethal Weapon. Right, right. Yeah. but it, it is one of those where there was a natural progression, and it made sense, and then... It just turned it up a notch to about the closest thing to Die Hard that we had at the time. What was that? Three years later, I guess. I think that it was, yeah. So, I mean, but Lethal Weapon itself, I think the thing that was that worked was the relationship between the two actors. And it it was just shockingly authentic. You wanted to hang out with them for four hours or six hours. And you really got that sense in Lethal Weapon Mm -hmm. 2. We should point people to that that fantastic episode on the rewatchables when they went over Lethal Weapon, which Mm -hmm. I I thought was a fantastic episode, Uh, particularly the you know the nitpicks where they said, "Do do you really get your children in the bathroom when your dad's naked?" No, there's a lot of weird things that go on. Yeah, it's like no, that's weird. No, no, especially not your teenage daughter. No, no. Um, but I I don't know. I was 12 or 13 when Lethal Weapon came out. I saw it in the theater. Uh, my dad took me, and it was it was pretty much everything you should not let your thirteen year old child oh, for sure. see yeah, in the first three minutes. You know, a girl does coke, uh-huh. uh, is naked, and then jumps to her death. Right, and uh, and this is this is actually a joke to the police because when Roger pulls up to the crime scene, he gets out of his car. You see a cop on the curb go, "Happy birthday, Raj!" Because there's a dead hooker, on, you know, right. laying on the car. Uh, this was uh, so morbid in terms of an opening. It was it was dead serious, like a film noir. 
And I think that we forget that now because the series has become not, uh, I won't say like a laughing stock, but just more lighthearted well, yeah, we, I mean, as we, it went along. To a certain degree, you, people think of Lethal Weapon, they think of Leo Getz. Okay, okay, okay. Right, but I mean, that's not what it was for the first one, especially and even the second. He was a very tertiary character. Sure. So... But it is one of those things where it's kind of morphed over the years to being something of that. Yeah, whereas the first one was just them two. Mm-hmm. The other thing that really st- strikes me about that film, and, and, and again, like I just, these things, I knew who Mel Gibson was. Um, oh, yeah, I totally knew who Mel Gibson he, was at that point. He was, a, he was a star. I think that Lethal Weapon turned him into a superstar. But that scene where he's just seriously thinking about killing himself. It's pretty intense. It's it's so intense and it really shows you Gibson's acting chops to to put himself in that situation when you, you know he's hitting himself in the head with the beretta mm-hmm. and then uh, holding a picture of his wife and just like just bawling over it. I the vulnerability they had in that scene. It's amazing that he never got an Oscar. He didn't get one for a Braveheart, right? He got a, I he think got a he, directing. he got a directing. Right. Yeah. But as an actor, yeah, he probably never did. No. No, I um, mean, the, the problem with uh And he'll never get one now. Which is unfortunate. You know, it's one of those where I, I, I don't know the man, obviously, but it strikes me as we forgive a lot of people for what they do because of the demons that haunt them, right? And... For some reason, Mel doesn't get that kind of acknowledgement. I'm not exactly sure why. Because he's he said some pretty reprehensible things. Oh, yeah. Oh, he hasn't that, yeah. done anything reprehensible that I know of. Right. Right? It's not. He never, as far as I'm aware, you know, he never beat his wife. He never, you know, did some really, some of the really god-awful things that we are quick to forgive those who get on TV and cry about. Right? Well, yeah, I mean. So I'm not really sure. Why he's exempt from the mass forgiveness? Well, I think it's the dreaded line of uh, of anti-Semitism, but there's there's an action as it, like you were saying, and we've been over kind of this territory. But there's been before. a lot of people who have done the anti-Semitism thing that walk away, relatively speaking, unscathed. Oh, there are members of Congress who are anti-Semitic right. and getting away with it. Yeah, but I mean, let's not compare our idols to well. politicians. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that's true, but like Louis C.K. admitted to to uh, almost forcing a, a woman to shower naked so he could masturbate, and and uh, as far as I know, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, you know, Mel Gibson has not done anything like that. <laughs> Apparently, he's been under the influence. He's been very verbally abusive. Yeah, I, 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 say some terrible things. Yeah, the sure. sugar tits and all of that. And Joe Esterhaza wrote a book uh, about working in Hollywood. And there's an entire chapter on Mel Gibson that is not flattering. Right. And it's very kind of fucked up. And, I mean, we're really – he's very specific about, you know, this was his first years being sober after a very long time not being. And he was – in the middle of a divorce and he had five kids and it was tearing his life apart and his girlfriend was treating him like shit. And I think that Gibson was just lashing out at fucking everybody and everything. And he was just hating himself and hating the world. And I would say that that is, that is very, from my experience with the people around me who are going through substance abuse recovery, that's very typical. And it's, it's one of those, I mean, his, 
his fascination with, uh, you know, Jesus, and I don't mean it from the Savior standpoint, but the, from the suffering standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. Sure. You know, it's one of those where it's like, oh, yeah, this, this, this makes sense. You are inflicting pain on yourself, whether it's in actuality or, you know, via the story. And it's like, what is chewing Europe on the inside? And it's just one of those where I think it's unfortunate because I think he is one of the greatest movie stars we've ever had. Yeah, Apocalypto is fantastic. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm, I agree with that. But uh, so back to Lethal Weapon. Yes, but back I'd, to Lethal. I'd, Weapon. I'd also like to add that. You know, Running Scared was like four years before Lethal Weapon, mm-hmm. uh, and that was. I don't know what the first movie was that had a white cop and a black cop. The buddy cop thing. I mean, it's... In, in the buddy cop thing. I think Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, I just think, made the perfect buddy cop movie. Well, no, they didn't. David Would... Glover and Mel Gibson did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the thing, they weren't buddies at the beginning of it. It, was, it wasn't even, like, halfway through. Right. I mean, that moment but, where... I mean, this whole compare and contrast thing has been going back for forever. I mean, you know, it's the odd couple. Yes. Right? Yes, it is. And it's That's just, right. it's always inherently fascinating. You want to see the two, you know, peanut butter and chocolate. That rush hour. Right. Whole thing. It's, it's, Shanghai it's, Nights. It's always worked. Even, even Beverly Hills Cop with Judge Reynolds. Because remember him? He carried that flick. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Are you ready for Letterboxd? Uh, I, I suppose. I mean, okay. I don't know if we want to do the letterbox thing necessarily, but go on. Well, I think we have to have the... Re- we have to rehab the conversation that we had. Sure, that was a flaming <laughs> disaster. <laughs> the last, the last thirty to forty-five minutes is getting ixed. Right, and that, and that that's well deserved. It was a train wreck. All right, so if do you think you're in that mindset where you can do that again? I can give it a shot. Okay, because we are. I think I think we're about fifteen twenty minutes from the end. Okay, and I think this is a good opportunity to go through it. So. You had you had an astounding comment about my viewership of films that I was. Well, yeah, I still I still don't get it, and that's something that since the original will be Ixnade that I will reiterate now, in that I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you pull off an average of what one point five movies per day. I mean, I do not get it. I, I I I'm I'm impressed, and when I say I don't get it, it's not for the lack of desire. It's the unbelievable effort that has to get put into it how, how do you pull this off well i i don't think i see that movie that many movies in a day oh i bet you're wrong <laughs> i will bet you're wrong well that's why we have letterboxd which you, you need to update yours oh i almost thought about it because i think that you see more movies and you're just not no no actually i don't it's not great, but it's it's just true. I mean, okay, I, I'm lucky if I pull off two a week, I if mean, that. And then after after we do this, we, we're going to get into October, and then I think that'll be it. So let's see. Let's take a look at your September. No, your October. I apologize. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. You watched 26 movies in October. Yeah. Is what you have logged. Yeah. And that is, you know, 
pretty remarkable. Yeah, I gave it a shot. Yes, you did. <laughs> For sure. And I saw eight. You've seen 44 movies this year, so you're running at a, almost one per week. Yeah, that's that's you know that's that's kind of what I do, right? I mean, I'll watch one on Saturday if I'm lucky, one on Sunday, right? I can't watch one during the week, and you can pull that off dramatically more effectively than I can. So I'm not really sure how you're able to pull this off. Maybe you do a lot more cocaine than I do. <laughs> oh my my heart can't take that. Um, I I made this argument up I think it was last January January of 2020 it was December of 2020 you saw four films Mm -hmm. Swingers Demolition Man How the Grinch Stole Christmas Godzilla King of the Monsters right well let's go ahead and say the uh, a couple of those three of those four were not my choice okay How the Grinch Stole Christmas was exclusively for the kids yeah that was their demand yeah. That movie was fucking terrible. So so basically you saw Swingers for yourself. Yeah, pretty much. What about Demolition Man? Uh, Nicole wanted to watch it. Okay. So Godzilla King of the Monsters was David. I made the comment of maybe that you would watch more movies if you saw more good ones. Well, that and that is, there's some truth to that, right? But it's also one of those where it's like, well, you know. Okay. So this may be edited out, right? Mm. But it's one of those that... You have got you've got a TV in your study, yes, right, and you've got the big ass movie theater upstairs, yes, and you've got a TV in the living room, yes, and I presume you have one in your bedroom, yes, and then your son has one, yes, and your daughter has one, yes. So I'm presuming that's how many is that? That's got to be what six? One. There's two downstairs. Then the, the theater, and then the, our bedroom, and then the kids. That's that's six. That's and, six. But I'm thinking about putting one in the bathroom. But you don't, it doesn't exist yet. No. Right, so you have six. Yeah. All right, so I've got one inside. Yeah. And I've got this one outside. And that's it. That's all I got. That's, I that's a problem. Well, I don't know if it's a problem or not. It's just, it's just a... Um, it's a... Uh, it's, it's a choice. A, it's a fundamental. Well, I don't even know if it's a choice per se. It's just one of those things where that's just what it is, right? I haven't ever had a we had we had a TV in our bedroom for maybe a year and a half, but it just didn't get used. The kids never had TVs in the bedrooms, and it's not one of those things where we're too good for it. It's just it wasn't the thing. So, you know, I and again, this is not one of those things where I, there's a right or a wrong, but I I don't go off to watch movies by myself which is good and bad right i know you have the opportunity to do so right but a lot of times when i'm back you know it's like get home we'll eat dinner and then okay well we'll we'll be watching and it'll be a tv show right and sometimes i'm just so exhausted i don't want to watch anything good so i will watch so it's one of those where i don't disagree with you where if i watched Better movies, you know, and taking from almost exactly a year ago is almost unfair because I'm like anyone else. I have my ups and downs of watching good shit and absolute crap. <laughs> Sometimes I want to watch crap and I'm fine with that. So I, th- I think that that's just a fundamental difference that I don't have, you know, that TV in the study, which you're able to go utilize, right? And I suspect, and I don't know this, that 
you're up much later than your wife is oh, my yeah. speculation. Oh, yeah. So in my in my world, it's just flipped. I, I go to bed. If I'm not in bed by 10, I'm kind of a cranky motherfucker. And then again, nobody wants to watch that crazy black and white French movie with me. So that's that's another issue. Um, I think there's two things going on with me. I mean, the first one is, well, I, I put in. I put a screen in my study solely so that I could do the Super 70 podcast. Right. And I, again, and don't – I mean – I, I don't see this judgmental. I don't okay, see well, this Okay, well, I just want to make sure. Yeah. It's just one of those. I wanted to phrase it. It's like this isn't anything beyond just a. Yeah, yeah, just the, the difference. Right. Yeah. Um, so, that's, so that's why I have that one. And I, I was relying heavily on that one. However, when I got my projector upstairs, and I'm not going to go into it, but it was – it was like falling out of the sky luck that I, I got yeah, that projector. Yeah, I mean, you ended up, you told me the story. It's pretty yeah, remarkable. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I just, you have I, to use it. Then. I spend a lot of my time up there. Sure. Uh, Cause I love film. We both love film. Oh, yeah. I like, I like seeing it as large as possible. And I'm, I'm in this mode now where ever since 2049, I took my son to see 2049 and me and my kids and, and my wife and I, really enjoy cinema and have been doing it for years. And we raised the kids up that way. We're all big Marvel fans, blah, 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 blah. But really since Luke saw 2049, he started just, it snapped somewhere in him. He was like, I get it. Mm -hmm. I get, I get films art. And ever since then he's, he has been up for seeing anything. Like this morning we watched Stalag 17, like I told you. And tomorrow he wants to watch, uh, uh, before sunrise, before he goes to work. He wants to start the Before trilogy. And actually, I, I forgot to mention this to you. Which I watched that in October. Yeah. I forgot to mention this to you, but I need to borrow your criterion oh, sure. for oh, yeah. uh, Rushmore and Bottle Rocket. Okay. Um, because we got to see those before the French Dispatch I next thought, week. I thought you already had. Okay. I don't. I don't. I, I thought that I did too, but I don't know where they are. Fair I, I searched the house for them. And okay. I thought you gave me DVD copies. I don't, I don't know. I thought you made copies of the ones that I had. But independent of that, yeah. No yeah, problem. they're not they're not in my flip books. Yeah, no worries. Um, you know, for my my listeners, I've got thousands of yeah. DVDs, thousands of movies. So, um, so I, I come home every day, and I break open my laptop from work, and I, I go upstairs and I watch movies, and I I answer emails and right. and do spreadsheets and shit and. And wait for Luke to come home, and then when Luke comes home, we we watch whatever it is that he that wants is. to watch. Yeah, and upstairs we've got um, my movie collection is downstairs, but upstairs in the theater room, I've got video discs, laser discs, DVDs, Blu-rays. Um, <clears throat> the Fire Stick is plugged in, so we have the Criterion Channel and Hulu and uh, HBO Max, and we just go from one to the other and just just try to knock out just as much as we can. And Luke is very – he's a senior now in high school, and he's very, very familiar with um, I need to see as many movies as I can right. with Dad before things get before to the point no where we can't option. do this yeah. anymore. Yeah, And and we're, we're prepared for a lifetime of this. I mean Luke and I have prepared for, you know, 10 years from now when I'm – oh, my God. Much older than you are now. Fucking 56, and he's going to be 27. We're still going to be calling each other, texting each other. Let's meet at the theater on Saturday, right. or come over to the house on this day so we can watch this. He's he still he knows now at at his age this is this is the way that we're going to live our life. We're we're going to watch as many movies as we can uh, together forever, and um, and our 
the women in the house, my wife and my daughter, are just going to stand by and let it happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I am, I am seriously thinking about putting this – is, this is horrible. If my parents ever knew this 20 years ago, they, they would put a stop to it. But I'm thinking about putting one in the bathroom. Okay. Um, Why? Because I want to be in the tub. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want to be in the tub and watch movies. I used to want to be in the tub and read, but now I just now I just want to sit and soak and watch Humphrey Bogart. Of course. When's the last time you took a bath? Do you take baths? Are I you do. A bath person? I am a bath person. Oh my god! I fucking love baths. I cannot remember literally the last time I took a bath. The <laughs> well, I, I can't right now too, but I I mean I don't do them every day. I, I mean, take you did one last year. Showers, or this year I suspect. I do, but you know one of the things now that I'm you know, I normally listen to podcasts. Right. I listen to podcasts twenty four seven. I fucking wake up. I listen to podcasts on the way to work, at work, on my way home. I listen to five or six podcasts a day. And uh, good you know, God, I, I mean, know, I know. I'm it's, lucky if I pull off one and a half. I mean the the everyone the NPR news to Texas Tribune updates to BBC documentaries to uh, the rewatchables and the projection booth and uh, the plot thickens and there's this one I just recently found on on Bruce Willis. That was fucking astounding. I, I don't doubt that. And and uh, I'm just deep, deep, deep into podcasts, and mm-hmm. that's what I normally do when I'm in I'm in the tub. And I'm I'm thinking I'm going to have to scale back my podcast so I can kick my cinema up a notch. Okay. And I think that's going to require um, a TV in the bathroom. All right. Well, I mean, all power to you. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk about October. Yes, October. You know, and I'm sure this is, if nothing else, a function of a couple different things, right? Number one, okay, we're just having good movies come out, period. Right? That's certainly a thing. But also, it's a... We're finally starting to get through the bullshit, right? Now, independent of your feelings on the pandemic or pandemic, however you want to call it, you know, it's a... There's some degree of normalcy that's reoccurring, right? Now, we're in Texas, so... The normalcy has been around for quite a long time, but that doesn't mean that movies have been released, right? So that's another thing is that these things are starting to come out to the come out to the public. So I, I don't know necessarily what it is. It's probably it's probably more the latter than it is the former. But there sure seems to be some movies coming out. It's like okay, I wanted to see or I did see that I really enjoyed. I mean, in the primary two. Oh, no, on my end was uh, Dune and the Last Night in Soho. Well, yeah, um, that was. I think that was the apex of October, but it started off with uh, Carnage. Okay, I didn't see that. Yeah, which which wound up being actually a pretty damn good sequel. From what I've heard, it's like better than most people would ever expect it to be. I I didn't think it was going to be that good. Yeah, and I liked the the tit for tat between um, you know Carnage and and Venom for sure. You know, another one was, you know, like you were saying, Dune. Right. Dune was remarkable. Why? Um, Because it was a very serious movie. And I appreciated that. And it was over stuff that's, to a certain degree, inher- inherently silly. But at the same time, it took itself seriously. It didn't play dumb to the audience or to itself. Um, Dune, when I was a kid, I read it when I was in junior high before the Lynch movie came out. 
to get prepped for the Lynch movie because I was a dork, still in. And I, I really love that book. The sequels, on the other hand, ooh, boy, that's, uh, I don't know about those. But the, the, the first book I thought was a monumental achievement. I really enjoyed it. And then the movie was really weird and kind of, kind of weird. No, it was just fucking weird when you get around to it. But, you know, I enjoyed it. But then the movie came out, and it was probably the best you could do on taking care of the first half of the book. I, I found it just okay. Unexpected. Just okay? No, 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 no. It's referencing what you were doing with the microphone. This is not what I was anticipating okay. occurring when you stood up. So, I mean, I just sat there gobsmacked, and then Villeneuve is a shockingly talented filmmaker, specifically at delivering scope, right? I don't know if the special effects and the ships, the starships, you know, that were portrayed, if they were CGI, if they were models, but there was a certain degree of weight to them, which it reminded me a lot of um, uh, Fury Road, in that when you watch Fury Road, there was a different impact because you knew these were all real cars smashing the shit out of each other. And I don't know if these were models... They certainly weren't, you know, 100-story, you know, tall starships, but they felt like they were real. And everything felt very tangible, and it felt very real, and I really appreciated it. And I just sat there. I, now, I, also, I saw it on IMAX, which enhanced the experience and really hurt my wallet. But it was something I truly enjoyed. Okay. I, I, got, I got a lot of things to say, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to put you through them. But I, I like you. I read Dune when I was a kid. Um, I think after I saw the Lynch film, and I was shocked that there were, there were things in the Lynch film that weren't in the book, like the weirding modules, and a lot of it seemed antithetical because in the in the book they they go through a lot of Herbert goes through a lot of effort to tell you about the machine wars and about how humans had invented thinking machines. I'm sorry, this is going to get so fucking nerdy for a lot of our listeners. But, oh, they clicked off a long time ago. You know, uh, humans created thinking machines. These thinking machines were how they were getting across the galaxy, and the thinking machines revolted, and so they humans decided we can't have thinking machines anymore, so they lost their ability to travel through space and time. Thus, the, the spice was uh, discovered to, to influence the human being's ability to control space and time. And so the guild, the navigators in the guild were the pilots who were accomplishing this task. And the weirding modules was an, another introduction of the machine. You notice in via news Dune, the new Dune, there's no guns right. and that there's no guns in the book. It's all hand to hand combat because they, they simply just do not trust machines. And it's not that they don't have them, but they're very, they're very simple machines. And that's why we have Mentats, you know, like Thufir Hawat in, in the House of Treaties is, is a Mentat. And Peter DeVries, who's in the House Harkonnen, is a Mentat. And so they, human computers do the thinking that computers once used to do. So th there were things like that that I'm not saying that Lynch didn't understand what he was doing. I just think that he, Lynch had a lot of cool ideas, like the heart plugs that yeah. he wanted to introduce that were not in, in and, the book. And then you took it and you crammed it all into two hours. Right. So that was another thing that, I mean, I don't want people to think that I don't like the remake because, or I guess we'll call it chapter one, sure. but I, I did like it. And like you were saying, like the scope that Villeneuve have, mm -hmm. like Lynch just wasn't capable of it. And I don't think it was a budget thing. I just think that it was just, 
he just didn't accomplish it on that on that larger scale for well, for whatever reason. Well, it's one of those. It makes no sense that they tapped him to do it. It's well, like, he was an award-winning director for I think for the Elephant Man. Right, it, but that was it. It was I mean he, before then he had done Elephant Man and Eraserhead. It's like this is not necessarily the guy. Well, of course you know then we have Marvel coming out now that may be defeating my entire perspective. But it's like you don't give this kind of guy this kind of money to tell that kind of story. You know, well, it was this right. huge leap. Yeah, well, in in the recent example of Chloe Zhao, she you know she was an indie director who was given this enormous budget, but at the same time. It's not like Zhao was not I, – I don't think her films were that small as a Resident Head and, and Elephant Man. Right. Th- those, were, those were really, really small films. So I, th- I think the scope was different. I, but also let's, let's also remember that Lynch was the third director attached to Dune, the first one being Jodorowsky. He's fell apart right. uh, because of financing. Uh, Laurentis went shopping for another one. He signed Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. Really, Scott's brother died, so he went to go do Blade Runner because he didn't want to do two years of prep on Dune. So that's when Lynch came in, you know, and um, the whole complicated process just led to. I think Lynch was overwhelmed by, by having so much. Now, oh, for sure. we're via Newton, but I, I do like the first film quite a bit. I think it's got a lot to recommend it because it's it's so close to the book. Right, and particularly when you know, I saw that Yodorowsky's Dune, the documentary where Yodorowsky was talking about, I was going to kill Paul at the end. I was like, "What? Why? Like, I, you know, it's, well, I mean, that's why would me you like, do that?" It's like, well, talk to Ryan Johnson then. <laughs> yes, yes. Ouch. Yeah, but so appropriate. Um, Vianu does something. I think that you know, I'm a big fan of Othello by Orson Welles that won mm-hmm. the Palme d'Or in 1954, I think, or 52. And one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of it, and I don't particularly like Shakespeare films, although I am a fan of Shakespeare. Really? Yeah. No, but, no. Okay. I'm just, well, well, I just think that most Shakespeare films suck for, for one reason or another, but basically because people are, are not, they're not making it accessible. And, uh, Wells, Wells jettisoned like 80% of the dialogue in Othello. So Othello was really just focused on his Othello was really just focused on obsession mm-hmm. and betrayal, and he just put if it didn't serve those two themes, it wasn't in there. Then it wasn't in the film, and which is why it opens up with like a five minute funeral procession, which you don't have time for five minutes without dialogue in any fucking Shakespeare film. Wells made time for it. You know, have you seen Branagh's Hamlet? <laughs> No, I haven't. Oh, really? Is it, well, no, no, I have. That's the four and a half hour oh, version yeah. one that takes yeah. place in that has time. Russia. That's got a <laughs> lot of time. So, and so I feel that Vianu was doing the same, and it, but it might have been to the film's detriment. Like I, I, I think that this film was about Paul mm-hmm. and about Paul's feeling and Paul's experiences. And it's not that I didn't didn't appreciate that Paul in the book. I think was like fifteen, and, went, yeah, and right. at the end of the book, I think he's like twenty. Yeah. And uh, I thought Chalamet was perfect for that that role in that time and place. But at the same time, it sort of – if it wasn't about Paul, then it didn't sort of fit into the story. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that was just left out. And there's a lot of things going on. And I was asked by a lot of people at work who knew I was a fan. And, of course, my wife just peppered me with questions. And even Luke, who just saw the first movie last year, was like, Dad, what, what the fuck is going on? I don't understand it. And 
I think. I don't know. I found it. Okay, go on. I think there's a lot of stuff that's jettisoned in, in terms of just focusing. I mean, this this movie is 45 minutes shorter than the long version of the 84, which Lynch took his name off of. Right. And less people understand it because there's there's actually less dialogue in this than than even the two hour version, and I don't think you know part of the 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 war between the Bene Gesserit and the Spacing Guild and the the uh, interference of the Emperor and the Harkonnens against the uh, the Atreides like I think a lot of that is lost, believe it or not. Well, I think it, the whole politics in the background of it is lost. Yeah, I, I kind of got it, but then again, I admit that I've read the book. So it's one of those where I just inherently know it, so I don't need to have it spelled out. So it wasn't – I kind of got it. So I don't really know. But for me, I didn't have that same, you know, criticism. Well, I knew what was going on because like you, I I, I just love the book. I think mm-hmm. I might be like top ten favorite books of all time. You know, The Razor's Edge by W. Somerset Maugham, Dune. But – in thinking of the first one and having these people come up to me and just ask me after they after they'd watched it like what the fuck is going on i think i think i've seen i think i found something that lynch did spot on what would that be that the remake didn't do in the first film too much pizza nah, and this. beer in the first film there's this magnificent scene in which the spacing guild comes to Seleucus Secundus and talk to the emperor Mm -hmm. and they come into the throne room and um, they say, look, we know that you're up to something and it involves the house of Trades, and you have to let us know what's going on because if this affects spice production, we are not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. And the emperor comes clean and he says, yes, I'm in a tiff with the house of Trades." Arrakis lease with the Harkonnens has expired. I have told the Harkonnens that they can have another lease on Arrakis if they destroy the House of Atreides for me. And I'm going to help them by giving them some of my Sardaukar legions. Mm-hmm. And the Spacing Guild says, okay, you can proceed with this plan, but you have to kill the Duke's son. And the emperor's like, okay, I can live with that bargain. But at the end, he's like, well, why do they want Paul killed? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him. I guess he was just planning to just let him go back to Caladan. Or whatever. Because the duke was the threat, not his son. But, you know, whatever. That one scene basically was the entire plot for the movie. Mm -hmm. And the scene is not in the book. And it's not in chapter one. You don't even see the emperor in chapter one or Fade Rautha for that matter. I was I was fine with it too, but that scene missing, I think that was spot on. Why a lot of people were confused. You know, that's certainly that's that's true, but that didn't impact my enjoyment of it, right? And if we're just going to do our personal enjoyment, not other people's feelings, but just your own personal feelings on it, for me, I thought it was a huge win. You know, I thought it was just, I thought I thought it was magnificent. I really did find it entrancing. I have the HBO Max, and I'm very hesitant to watch it again only because of the scope. I know it won't be the same, even though I do have a nice-sized TV. It's just not the same as, you know, the crazy-ass IMAX. But, no, I I, I get you, but at the same time, I I didn't have the same. I I don't want people, again, to think that I I didn't like it. No, I'm not Um, thinking that you you disliked it. I did. I, I particularly like moments like... Uh, the Baron's 
having his devices embedded in his back so that he can float around and off his feet because he's this fat, lecherous person who doesn't even want to walk everywhere that he goes. I liked that because when you saw the Sardar car float down mm-hmm. in the uh, attack in the ecological f- factory, it made sense because they're using the same technology. Right. So th- that wasn't in the book or in the other movie, but it it, made sense. it was an extension, so it made sense. And I think there was a lot of that. There's very, very creepy gothic moments like uh, the Baron hiding in the ceiling. I, I thought all that was fine. All that was really good. My I had I had a couple of tiffs. That in the end don't really mean anything. But the first one is like Zendaya is a celebutante. Yeah, and she doesn't – she's not Shawnee and she doesn't belong in this movie. She's a flash in the pan. I'm sorry. She was good in Spider-Man and and she's – I mean I might be wrong. But I don't think she's going to be a great actress. I haven't seen the yet that makes me argue the point. Yeah. Now the, the thing that really didn't make sense to me other than her casting was – and I, I think we were texting like the day before or, or while I was on the way to the theater. And you were like, no, dude, this is like half of the first movie. And right. I was like, what? Yeah, because you thought it was like. Oh, it was the whole thing. Yeah, and then partially into one of the sequel books or something. Yeah. Yeah, and you were like, no, no, this is only like half the first book. And I was like, so it leaves off with the duel or what? And you were like, I don't know, but it's it's not the whole movie. Because so, I didn't see it yet. Yeah. yeah, of course. So that would make sense. So. I, I would not have left it after the duel. I, I would have left Paul and Jessica in the desert. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think the, the ending spot was curious and not helpful. Right. But, I mean, okay. When it, the whole thing's completed, okay. I mean, you know, you look at the Lord of the Rings trilogies, and each one of those movies ended at a natural pause point, for sure. This yeah. one was a very interesting. It would have made a lot more sense for the House of or the uh, fall of House of Trinities to be the end. And they're staring off into the desert, and there you go. Right. So I don't know necessarily why they chose to end it at that spot. I did find it curious and kind of jarring. Well, I think it was to give it a little bit of hope, you know, if they were stuck in the desert in the end by themselves. Well, and also I think it's one of those where they didn't know that they were going to make the second movie, which has now been greenlit. Right. Yeah, it it took all of 48 hours. Yeah, it didn't take a while. It was was sort of dumb. But that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. I mean, I would have started the next film with the duel. Yeah, that, that it, would make thematic sense. Yeah, it's because Paul's starting off small, and then at the end, right. he's, you know, he's, he's the modest. Much, he's much larger. Yeah. Now, did you read Dune Messiah? Um, I don't. I think I read, is Messiah number two? Yeah. So I think I did read that, and it was like, eh. And then I started into Children of Dune, which said, okay, I'm done. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I, 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 that, that was, those ones didn't do a damn thing for me. Those were like... Really? I don't know what's going on. I don't like it. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Now, this well, was a long, long time ago. Right. I don't know if I like it anymore now, but... I read Dune Messiah, I think, when I was in college. And um, I was blown away by it. I thought it was the best sequel of of a book ever. And it's, it's only half the length, I think, of the first novel. Yeah, it's significantly shorter. Yeah. But the... We're winding up now. It's Ooh. okay. We're almost done. You know, beat this and last <laughs> night in Soho. So, but... You know, the Muad'Dib's army is going through the universe, conquering the the emperor's um, you know forces across the houses of Lanzarote. Paul is on on Dune, uh, moving the forces around the universe with his mind, mm-hmm. you know, because he's all powerful now, and um, he's reaching just like this apex of re- religious status. 
and there's something going on in the house of Trades that's not making sense to him. And he goes off on this sort of, um, journey where he's, you know, he's Marlowing around trying to figure things out. And what you find out at the end of the book was the Harkonnens have, and the Bene Gesserit were teaming together to basically invent the series of revelations for him to find so they could get Muad'Dib in a certain place at a certain time specifically so they could set off an atomic and kill him, okay. which is the last chapter of the book. And it was, it was an enormous setup that you, you didn't get until the last page. You were like, Oh my God, Herbert did it again. And I, I found it, I found it really cool. And then of course, children of Dune are, you know, Aaliyah is taken over his sister and then the, her, his, her niece and nephew, Muad'Dib's kids are lost somewhere in the desert. And they have to survive to fight onto the Harkonnens. I, I finished that book. I don't remember what it was, but it was made into a pretty successful series on sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Sci-fi did Children of Dune, which was Dune Messiah and Children of Dune into the same like three-part miniseries or something. I didn't I didn't see it, but people who who read the book and saw it told me that it was really good. So I, I would like a chapter three is what I'm saying. Maybe they'll at do it. least on 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 Dune Messiah. But I don't know how you could do Dune Messiah, kill Muad'Dib, and then not have a chapter four, right. which would be Children of Dune, which I'm not too interested in seeing. But, but you might have to they, have that. They, I mean, I'm sure they won't. I, I'm sure it'll just be the second half. One and two. I yeah. Mean, and that's probably the way it should be. But, of course, I understand that HBO Max is doing a uh, prequel show. Of Dune? Hmm? That's a... Um, House of Trades? No, it's a... Because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's uh, Herbert's other book. No, Herbert son. Uh, from what I remember reading, it was uh, going to be focused on his mother, the lady Jessica, yeah, and her story. So I mean, I think it'll probably veer pretty dramatically from most of the stuff that I know personally. So yeah, but I mean, I think they might. It, this this whole HBO Max and Warner Brothers and not not them exclusively. Like you're kind of seeing this with Marvel. I find it kind of interesting where you're using these different formats to weave together bigger stories and if they can maintain the same budget and the same cast I think I, I think it could be pretty exciting frankly going forward Last Night in Soho what never heard of it Last Night in Soho holy fucking shit that was kick ass sorry that's alright there you go there's, there's my four star review I, I just I no. thought it was exceptional no I did too I was, I was actually I was I was very excited by it. I think Edgar Wright is probably my the filmmaker I'm latching on to currently who I have the most hope for going forward because he's running it about he's batting about a thousand for me. So it's pretty consistent, I'm sure, with a lot of people, but this movie I thought was truly exceptional. So I read this review I got to read it to you because okay. I think this person missed the point. Okay. What's the, okay. This is what he said. Everything about how this has been self-consciously stylized makes it far too cute and polished to enter the ugly and surreal realm that a movie like this needs to get to. It feels like a little boy playing dress up Polanski or Argento. And I'm sorry if this is insensitive, but these movies had a certain kind of unsettling, raw, dirty power to them when made by legitimate perverts of their era. 
okay. This in, is a big uh this is a big point in their favor, I suppose. In twenty twenty one, there's nothing here but shallow image recreation and not even very good recreation at that. The sixty stuff even looks plastic, with his goddamn whip pan cutting and male feminist apologia for trafficking in those problematic images. Misogyny existed in the 60s. Nostalgia is bad. Thank you, Edgar. Not a total failure. I will admit to being intrigued by the first 45 minutes or so, mostly due to the lead performances. But by the end, the whole thing is pretty embarrassing and the incoherent and worst of all not remotely scary. Between this and Baby Driver, it's become quite obvious that the dude needs to go back to emotionally, visually tuning up comedies about small-town brutish losers. He's very good at it. And stop pretending he's on the level of the filmmakers he admires as a cinephile. Okay. So he's grinding that axe. I don't know. That's a really... God, he takes shit personally, whoever that person is. Well, I mean, I didn't see this as like a Jallo type of film. Oh, I think that it's been um, marketed as being a Jallo type film. You think so? Yeah, but I, I don't know if that's relevant or not, right? I mean, I see a lot of things that get marketed or declared something, and whether they are or not is not relevant as long as I like it or I don't. Yeah. And I thought this was the most alive movie I've seen in a long time. Yes. I thought that the uh, trio of main performances with, you know, Taylor Joy and um, what is her name? Thomas and McKenzie. Yes. Thomas and McKenzie. And Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg. I thought they were remarkable. I thought that the filmmaking tricks were shockingly effective and really benefited the story. You know, I've seen a lot of movies with special effects where you go, ooh, that's cool. Special effects were cool. And this was one of those movies you walk out saying, were there special effects? And the answer is yes, they were there. It's just so well done. He calls it shallow image recreation. I, 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 I guess you could say that, but you can say that about almost anybody if you really want to grind enough axes. I mean, who doesn't take what came before them I mean, and was, reinterpret it? I mean, was I don't was that what not De Palma was doing with Hitchcock? Yeah, he absolutely was. I, don't, I think that's kind of a bullshit thing. I mean, this is something that you're kind of saying, I am cooler than thou. A little boy playing dress-up Polanski in Argento. And I don't know how accurate that is. I mean, it's not a recreation of those guys' movies. I mean, I didn't see anything that was Polanski-like in oh, this it's film. Very, it's very much like Repulsion. Is it? Yeah, I haven't seen Repulsion. It's very much like Repulsion. Is it? It okay. very much is. But it's okay. also one of those things where... He's not a – this is an inspiration as opposed to a – at least for me, it was I, – I took it as an inspiration as opposed to a, you know, a, a remake or something. I mean, when you are when you say something like that, I think, you know, the Van Sant, you know, redo of Psycho. Right, right, is, right. right. You know, why bother? Right, which is not, I'm sure, what he's saying, but I, I think it's kind of a jackass thing to say. The 60s stuff even looks plastic. Well, I, I don't think you understand the 60s if you write a statement like that. No. I mean, that was the big thing about the, the graduate, for example, was plastics. No, Get into plastics. The plastics was... But I'm not even sure what that person means by that. Because, I mean, what do you mean? It, it, it looked plastic. What With his goddamn whip pan cutting. But, 
What is whip pan cutting? Well, whip pan cutting is, I mean, the camera movements and then the subsequent cuts. But, I mean, the whole thing was a lot of the 60s in that whole time frame within that story was Mackenzie, the character's projection of the time frame. I mean, she was channeling this force. I mean, none of it. I think that's a big bunch of bullshit. Nostalgia is bad. I didn't. I didn't see this film as saying nostalgia is well, bad. Well, I think it was saying that the nostalgia. If if one takes living in the past as where they want to be, independent of their reality, that's bad. But I mean, but she didn't have nostalgia. Oh, she didn't. She didn't live in the sixties. No, 60s. but she was definitely looking at the sixties as a pristine time, right? right? I mean, it starts off with her, you know. I mean, the, the swinging basis, London. The, the base of the character was wanting was wanting that which never existed. Right. But I don't know if that means anything. I mean, isn't that kind of part of the point of the story? Is that yeah, the sixties are not what this character thought um, had imagined them to be, or at least this very specific part of this world in the sixties. Stop pretending he's on the level of the filmmakers he admires as a cinephile. You know, something tells me if Edgar Wright was sitting here right now, he'd laugh and say, oh, I never thought I would be them. I mean, Well, Edgar Wright just went on to the rewatchables and talked about this film. Yeah. And, yeah, he, he. I think that he would find that very funny. Now, I want to go... Who who wrote that? I'm not going to say. Is it anybody I know? No, it's it's on Letterboxd. Oh, so it's just some rando jackwad? Yes. Okay. So, just like we're Rando Jack Watts. Just like we are. <laughs> Two hicks from Texas yeah. who like movies. No, I mean, I now, really thought it was a, I, I thought it was very, it was one of the best times I had the movies in, I can't remember how long. So, I, I read your review. I thought your re, your review was very good. Now, I want to go through Edgar Wright's filmography uh-huh. for for the sake of just. This conversation. Just conversation and and making sure that we're on the same fucking page because I, I do not understand what he meant by that. Sean of the dead is gotta be next to night of the living dead. The greatest fucking zombie film ever made it. It's perfect. That's a perfect film. There's nothing I'd change about it for sure. And you ask anyone who's seen it and they instantly crack up at X scene. Right. Everyone has a favorite scene. No, I, I I tend to agree. I mean, I think it's one of those. It's not a perfect movie, but it's certainly perfect for me. Hot Fuzz. Love that movie. It's one of my daughter's top ten movies. As good year. as it is, I think it's underrated. Yeah, no, it is absolutely underrated. I mean, this okay. So, Shaun of the Dead has a seven point nine. That seems like fucking low. That this should be like a nine nine five. To me, it is. Yeah. Okay, and then Hot Fuzz seven point eight. Like, maybe it's not a nine, but... Hot Fuzz? Yeah. I thought you just said that. Okay. Well, no, no. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead is a 7.9. Wow, that's shocking. Right. I mean, that should be a nine or a 9.5. To me, yeah. So Hot Fuzz is not as good as as Shaun of the Dead, in my opinion, but it's it's close. It's really... It might be half a star behind, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, so then... I, I am so... I feel... I'm angry about Scott Pilgrim. Oh, I thought... Okay? Because this this was at a time... I know a lot of things were going on in my life in 2010. I wasn't paying attention like I should have. 
Everybody in the world, everybody on the street, everybody on the radio, everybody on the internet, everyone I spoke to said, don't go see that piece of trash, Scott Pilgrim. And I thought, Jesus Christ, this guy did Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. How bad could it be? And I didn't go. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Then like five years later, I saw it on Netflix. And I was like, I fucking missed that movie in the theater? Yeah, that movie was great. That movie was fucking great. It was that. I, I couldn't. I felt robbed. I, I'm angry about it. I can tell. And, you just pounded the shit out of that chair. And I, I went out and bought the most expensive fucking Blu-ray I could at Best Buy <laughs> to make up for it. I paid full price. 7.5. Oh, relative to what everybody was telling you, that's quite high. The World's End. That one doesn't do much for me. I was disappointed in the last hour. Yeah. That, it's, that, it's not a bad film. No, I, I wouldn't say it's terrible, but I mean that one doesn't do much for me. Baby Driver. Love it. Everybody loves that movie. More than me. More than me. Uh-huh. But I think that's a solid film. To me, it's got too many too many people looking at it. He did the Sparks Brothers doc, which I, have I haven't seen. Yet, Last Night in Soho on IMDb. And, th- and this, this film was, was trashed pretty much by the critics. Last Night in Soho? Seven po- yeah, 7.6. Really? Yeah. Oh, I and, and it that. bombed. It bombed at the office. Well, that's the thing. I don't know how much that matters. It's one of those that I know. In my review, I commented there was only three people in the theater, and it was me, my wife, and my daughter. And that was troubling to me because it was opening weekend, and it was in the biggest screen that that theater had. And I was like, "Ooh, this is not good sign for this movie itself and his, you know, career." But I, I, I was, I made a point of it in my review to say this is. Very unfortunate because I thought that was a I thought it was a classic. I thought it was an instant classic. Yeah. And some of this, you know, what it reminded me of is when we watched Contact and we saw the camera moves, like mm-hmm. just do weird things. Like that is not possible. Right. That camera in that physical space going down the the hallway and the staircase and whatever it was with the the child running to get the medication for her father. That we know that is physically impossible to do that shot. How did he do that shot? Of right. course, we had CGA and all of that, but still, you have to wonder how they did it. Yeah. And, I saw the same thing last night in Soho had like 10 of those shots. Yeah, and I don't think very many of those were CGI. I think a lot of it was done in camera. Yeah. I mean, I well, that's what he said in the Rewatchables yeah. podcast. And I knew that going in, which is why I was interested. I was like, oh, I'll be interested to see how this looks. And I was just, just shocked how enthralled I was. Oh, no, I, that was probably, you know, it's, it's hard to say because the past year and a half have been so fucking weird, right? But it's definitely my favorite movie the past year and a half. I don't know if it will be the one I look back at and say, oh, that was the best, but it was definitely my favorite. I mean, I haven't seen a movie that entertaining to me personally in a long time. I, I found it astoundingly visually interesting for yeah. every second that I spent watching yeah, it. I, I didn't want to leave. No, I want to watch it again, and yeah. maybe I'll see it tomorrow, but I doubt it. But that, it was, it was uh, you know, five out of five. I, I have no complaints. You know, after the first feeling, there's nothing I changed. Maybe if I watched it again, there'd be some things I'd switch or change and whatever, and it wouldn't be as good because I'm not that guy. But it is one of those that, yeah, it was one of my faves by far. There's a Me Too element in The Last Night in Soho and in in The Last Duel, which you just spoke about, uh, taking taking the woman's perspective a little bit more, I don't want to say seriously, but trying trying to understand Sidner's suit. I mean, it's very obvious in last night Soho. I don't think it hits you with a hammer. Well, I mean... I, I, I think it, 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 it... These were very very clearly conceived and 
And uh, in a certain, like the last duels case, shot before the pandemic. And right. I don't know if last night in Soho was. No, I think this movie's uh, been delivery, delayed a year. Yeah, so okay. So my presumption is it has been. Okay. I, I don't know what you mean by a... Well, okay, go on. Well, last night in Soho, just pretty much every male but one looks like a piece of shit. And in the last duel, every man is a piece of shit. Well, see, I don't... Okay. But... <clears throat> What I, what I was trying trying to say is I, I did not feel like that was hitting the audience over the head with that. I, I didn't see it as a message is no, what I'm saying. It's not a okay? message movie, but I also don't think it's any – I don't think it's a – I mean I could be naive. I could be totally wrong. But but I, I, don't, I, don't, I, think that, I don't think it's a – But he mentions it in this review, and I've seen it in a lot of reviews, not just on Letterboxd but on IMDb too. This seems to be a problem in the audience. The audience does not like – criticism of misogyny and they react well negatively towards it well i know i don't like criticisms of misogyny if i think it's inauthentic if it's a if it's inauthentic or if it's a, a message right i have got a real problem with that i have a real problem with that I've, I've seen a lot of reviews that i've got real problems with when they're correlating the action on screen to something that they're connecting to real life and sometimes it's pretty obvious which i usually find obnoxious and sometimes it's like oh you're trying to connect dots that may not even exist i don't i don't look at you know last night in soho as anything beyond the story of two people right and yes all the dudes in that flick with the exception of one you were saying were created as jack wagons but that was just that story right i don't i didn't take it as a is an indictment or a broader, you know, missive on anything beyond these were these two people's stories. And no, you were on, there was at least, there were two people, two dudes in that movie who were, you know, reasonably upstanding humans from a male perspective. But I didn't look at it as like one of those where it's like, oh, this means something. I looked at it as like, Oh, well, that, that, this is these people's experiences, and these are the people they ran across, and that's the way it is. It was a good story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've got a real problem with the, if there are these message movies. I, most people inherently don't want to be preached to. Right. Lord knows I don't. I, did, I didn't see that this was a preaching film. No, I didn't even find and, any kind of political perspective to it at all. No. So I think they're reading something into a subtext that right. is not there. Well, I, I agree with you. I, I agree yeah. with you. Because there's a lot of things that are there in other stuff, and this one – for me, wasn't or it was told so well. It was eh, okay. Yeah, and as far as the last duel is concerned, it's not subtext; it is text. And if you got a problem with that, then don't go see it. No, my God, you know. I haven't seen it. Have no opinion. I'd let you know if I did. But there's a lot of things out there that aren't political that people want to politicize, and things that are very political that you know. We live in political times, my friend. We've always lived in political times. This is nothing new. All right. Last words. Uh, it was a pleasure. We talked for a long time. My ears hurt. <laughs> but I do appreciate you making the long haul. No worries, man. And I would totally junk that first uh, conversation. <laughs> Let me go over it again. All right, man. All right. Thank you.
about directing, which would, would be the third Star Wars. And I had next door to zero interest. So he took me upstairs, and he showed me these things called Wookiees. And now this headache is getting, you know, getting stronger. <laughs> and he showed me many animals and different things. Then he took me for a ride in his Ferrari for a lunch. And George is kind of short. So he was, his seat was way back, and he was almost laying down in the car. We were flying through this little town up in Northern California. We went to a restaurant. Not that I don't like salad, but that's all they had was, was salad. <laughs> then I got a really, uh, an almost like a migraine headache. And I could hardly wait to get to home.